Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. As always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim. Joining me is... Catherine! My sister, and we are here this week to continue our fun October discussion of, let's say, underrated or underappreciated horror films. And we continue that this week with Pandorum, the 2009 sci-fi horror pretty solid film i'm not gonna say masterpiece yet we might get there or, or failure piece at least but a fun little one and sci-fi horror is so rare these days that definitely worth the time but uh 2009 pandorum directed by christian alvart and uh really his last film yeah his outside of the his, german market anyway his wiki article doesn't lead you to a lot of, of films that many of them don't even have articles I noticed no um, I knew of him from uh, the film he had done before this one which was called Antibodies or at least that's how yeah. it was released in, in European countries uh, Anticorper in, in Germany which was a, a solid little serial killer flick sort of um, Sort of if Hannibal Lecter wasn't only in 15 minutes of Silence of the Lambs and was also trying to get Clarice Starling to commit murder. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, it's it's a solid, uh, solid little film. Um, Norman Reedus, I believe, is also in that one. Uh, so he uh, makes a, a brief appearance in Pandorum. So he and Alvard have obviously And doesn't he work with the guy who's in that movie in Pandorum and then in a bunch of other things too. I don't know what the guy's name is. It's just the same actor. The lead in antibodies. Yes. Yeah. Um, he plays the, the sort of lead, um, mutant slash cannibal in this film and, um, has pretty much been in all of all of arts, major films. Um, he did make another, uh, United States released film in 2009 called Case 39, which is also decent. Um, it feels like 2009 was like his big swing year. He, he made some big movies or movies that were expected to be pretty big, and, and neither of them really hit, unfortunately. Um, so I guess let's go ahead and jump in. Let's let's talk about Pandorum. Um, this one, when it came out, I was aware of Alvar, uh, of Alvart's work from Antibodies, uh, which, as far as I remember, you know, my my wife and I, we've been cord cutters forever. Um, you know, we haven't had you know like TV package for you know since like two thousand three. I've never it's, had one ever. <laughs> yeah, you know, we had it for a brief time when we were in college. Just you know, it was somewhat nice to just kind of collapse into the the futon or wherever, whatever we had and whatever tiny apartment we were living in and just sort of watch something. But, uh, we were, you know, obviously early, early adopters of Netflix streaming. Uh, you know, it came out in 2007. We pretty much jumped on board immediately. We were already Netflix subscribers to the disc version. So it was just a couple of bucks extra to, uh, join the streaming service. And antibodies was one of the first things I watched on Netflix. Um, and, and was surprised by it, enjoyed it. And, and so, you know, Alvart was kind of on my radar. And so a few years later, Pandorum starts, you know, getting some buzz. 
the first few trailers that they released were definitely impressive and and i was excited you know again this is a it's becoming more common now just because there are more venues to get horror but sci-fi horror specifically is still a somewhat sort of somewhat low-key genre um obviously we've got the big swings we've got alien covenant we've got you know the, the people you know ridley scott established much of what we now understand of the genre and uh and and continues to sort of you know play in that sandbox if you want to call it that great yeah (laughs) real happy about that (laughs) and um you know places like shutter and and netflix have allowed more room for smaller budgeted sci-fi horror projects to you know sort of surface but it's it's still pretty exciting to see one that's decent and see one that's pretty good because uh, a lot of them are not, unfortunately. Uh, but I would put Pandorum in the, the decent uh, category. So the the setup and, and one of the things we'll talk about when we get to the reviews on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and some of the other services is that it, the setup is is fairly derivative. Right? Yeah. There's not there's not a ton of originality here in the setup. We basically have a colony ship that has been sent away from Earth. We don't really know exactly why at the beginning of the film, but they're on a mission. They are traveling. We're sort of briefly told that Earth was in a bad state when they left. Overpopulation, um, wars, uh, you know, food shortages, you know, pretty much everything, you know, <laughs> everything happening now. No. Um, Oops. But <laughs> it, was a, it was a prophecy. It turns out it was but, a pandemic that killed everyone. Exactly. Um, and, and we get this... There's there's not a ton of this movie that takes place outside of the, the ship itself. But we do get this lovely, you know, sort of pan through the the setup of the ship. We've got the, you know, the habitat rings that spin to create gravity and the central fuselage with the engines. You know, it's a, a really, you know, again, kind of derivative, somewhat traditional design. But we're we're introduced to this ship as it's flying through space and a little bit about its situation before we're pretty much thrown in. Um, but the basic setup is a, a pilot awakens from some form of hypersleep to find that the ship he was on, where he was supposed to be woken up as part of a, a rotation of pilots to steer the ship towards its destination, but that has all failed. The ship is now basically empty, or at least appears to be, and he is alone. Uh, eventually he hooks up with his commanding officer or at least one of them and um, they attempt to try and get the ship sort of back up to spec so that they can continue the mission uh, but the generator or the the reactor is failing they've got you know all these things they need to do um, again a very traditional setup not terribly unlike uh, a video game that came out around this time too called dead space which is mm-hmm. my favorite video games a very similar setup you know a uh, in that one, a team of engineers is, is sent into a ship to figure out what went wrong. This one, they, they wake up in it. But, uh, you know, again, it's it's a fairly stock, you know, sci-fi premise to kick things off. And what they discover on the ship, the, the twists and the turns, and, and more importantly, the, the horrific elements are what kind of drive everything forward. Um, so it's a solid flick, you know, dear listeners, if you, if that sounds interesting to you, um, go ahead and pause and come back after you've had a chance to go see it. And we're going to dive into it pretty deeply, of course. 
I believe it is streaming at the moment. This is October 2020. It is streaming on HBO Max or, or the HBO array of services, whatever you want. Uh, so it is available if you have access. But so, again, Alvart was an exciting filmmaker in, in 07, 08, and 09. He was doing some interesting things. Uh, so I was definitely excited. Um, the cast of this film is pretty solid. It's small. But we have uh, Ben Foster, who is, quite frankly, he carries this film on his back pretty hard. He is the central character, and he is working very, very hard to legitimize what's happening. Uh, and this comes in the time when, quite frankly, Ben Foster was in everything. Um, and good for like, him, because he's not in anything now, and that makes and me not, sad. Not very much, no. From like, But from like 2006 to 2011... Uh, he was putting out like three, four, five, maybe six movies a year, just burning up screen time. Uh, he had a lot of success a couple of years ago with Hell or High Water with Chris Pine, which was very good. Um, and he's fallen into sort of a comfortable, um, you know, he does some TV stuff. He did a TV show for a couple of years, I think. Um, you know, he was on Six Feet Under when it was on, which is a great show. Um, but just, just a, a ton of success uh, during this period. Uh, I guess really kicking off with X-Men 3, where he played the, the first incarnation of Angel. Not many people can say X3 worked out for them. No, no. But for Ben Foster, at least a little bit, maybe. Um, so again, you know, guy wakes up on ship, doesn't know what's going on, must discover what's going on. Very straightforward setup, but executed in some interesting ways. Um, so Ben Foster, more importantly, is joined by Dennis Quaid, uh, who, again, don't see a lot in this uh, time period. Um, he was not working very much. He's found some recent success. He was in those uh, the Dog's Purpose movies, I think. Yeah, and he like um, supports Donald Trump and a lot of really unfortunate things. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Quaid brothers have, have certainly gone their <laughs> own way. Let's call it that. They have... Uh, they have carved out a path and and followed it distinctly <laughs> um but uh you know at the time dennis quaid's career was in a bit of a lull uh he you know was doing some some things here and there but an important figure for me in growing up with film uh you know the 1980s and 90s was his heyday by far uh we Briefly mentioned during the Burbs episode, his role in in uh, Inner Space, which was one of my favorite movies growing up. So um, you know, it's always nice to see Dennis Quaid work, and he gets to do some interesting stuff here. It's it's a it's a small role, I think. Uh, it's safe to say, even though he's in this film quite a bit, it's it's a limited role. He, he really stays in one room for the vast majority of it. it. Feels like something he could have done in a few days. Uh, which maybe he did. This was not a hugely budgeted film. Um, but in terms of, of its production, uh, you know, Quaid was definitely one of the you know, core things that got it made, I think, uh, his presence. Um, but Ben Foster is joined by Cam Gigande. Uh, Gigande? Something like that. Gigande. <laughs> I, I really don't know how to pronounce his last name. And What's I've his face? The time to look Something it or other. Uh, dude from Twilight. Uh, really dude face. He, he was bad guy in Twilight. He was the bad guy in Twilight. Wow, why have he I never put indeed. that together? Yep, he was that guy. I've seen these movies the dozens of times. 
Ah. He's very clean cut in this one. Very clean cut. Uh, we also have uh, Anche Trao, who um, I guess is probably most recognizable. She played Feyora in Man of Steel. Uh, that came out a couple years after this. Uh, that's probably her most visible role. But she uh, was also on Netflix's Dark, uh, that series, uh, which was a German television series that Netflix rebroadcast over here and, and has done very well. People I watched a couple really episodes like that. of that. I, I, did, I didn't finish it, but I, it was nice. <laughs> what yeah, I watched was cool. great. I mean, you know, some neat little time travel stuff. But, you know, so she's she works quite a bit in, in Germany, which is her, her home country. Um and uh, and is is quite good in this. Again, it's it's a limited role. There's not a ton going on with it, but she certainly uh, carries it well. We also have uh, Kung Lei, who is a primary, I think Vietnamese Vietnamese um, mixed martial arts fighter. So he gets some really good action sequences here, and then a, a, a nice you know supporting cast rounding things out. But Pandorum uh, was was positioned, or at least supported. The reason that we have it in theaters and in this state uh, is because of one Paul W. S. Anderson, uh, friend of the show. No, he's not. But yes, he is. Uh, he's my close personal friend. Let's Paul, say a man. Call me. <laughs> a man who is is familiar with the concept of the failure piece. Um. There were several reviewers, and I'll, I didn't pull any specifically that mentioned this, but a lot of them talked about this feeling like a video game adaptation where there was no video game to base it on, um, which is obviously a dig at Paul W.S. Anderson's... Um, I feel like him just being uh, involved role. with this kind of doomed it a little bit to those criticisms, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, even though really it was just they saw a script with potential or, or what they saw as potential and, and decided that instead of letting it be this ultra low budget production, which was its initial plan, uh, the guy who wrote it, Travis Malloy, um, it basically had initially planned to shoot it for a few hundred thousand dollars in some abandoned warehouse in Canada somewhere uh, as a very, very small production. They got a hold of it, they liked it, and decided to, to back it through their Constantine film production company. Um, but here's the thing, right? And we'll talk about Paul W.S. Anderson um, in the future. He has the, much of his, his film output fits within the, the lovely category that we like to discuss. But here's the, the, the fact that a lot of people who don't like Paul W.S. Anderson don't acknowledge. And that is that he took Resident Evil, which is a ridiculous video game franchise uh, very fun i enjoy them but they are ludicrous on mm -hmm. pretty much every level oh, yes. uh in the fifth one chris redfield punches a boulder into albert wesker's face yeah uh, and that's not the thing that boulder. happened yeah not a small boulder uh, oh. a very large boulder uh you know that's what we're working with here but paul anderson through verve and and seemingly a, a stunning understanding of how to how to uh, shoot his wife on film turned that into a billion dollar franchise over six films 
Seven and none of us expected maybe. that to happen. <laughs> no, no one expected that to happen. Uh, Resident Evil is one of the most successful film franchises in history. It did so without fanfare. It did so against all critical recommendations. So whatever you want to believe or say about Paul W.S. Anderson, you're probably right. But he can put some butts in seats. People like his movies. Right. Um, so I like his movies. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, I went to see, which one was it? I think it was 4. I went to see Resident Evil 4. Whatever the first 3D one was uh, on my birthday. Like, it was my birthday present to go see that movie. Uh, you know, if there had been another movie to go see that weekend, we probably would have seen it. But there wasn't, and so we did. And it was fine. Uh, ridiculous and enjoyable. Mia Jovovich cutting off zombie heads in white hallways. I mean, what more do you want? Not much. <laughs> I did have a listener comment uh, that we were wrong about the uh, predators in AVP. They're too big, and uh, and so I just wanted to shout shout out that listener and say you're not wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> correct. They were too big. I still don't hate them, but uh, yes, correct. Uh, but for for Anderson here, I, I think really he just saw a project that was not too far away from a project that he himself did. And that, of course, is Event Horizon, which I will contend to anyone who will listen is one of the greatest sci-fi horror films the best. ever. Uh, it is it is nearly unparalleled in its quality. We watch and it every it year for New Year's Eve for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, it is our tradition. I love that movie. I will never stop loving it. No, it's great. Um, I, I enjoy it immensely. Uh, now, a lot of that has to do with the cast. It, it definitely has to do with the script, which is, is great. Um, but it's it's a wonderful film. And I think maybe he saw a little bit of that in this uh, because it certainly verges on, on some of the same concepts and ideas, um, but in, in some, some interesting ways. So Pandorum, uh, you know, we've got this German director who's, who's really only had a couple of, of decently scaled projects. Steps in. Um, Malloy has the initial script. The initial script it was about a prison ship, right? The Pandorum was the name of the ship. It was supposed to be a prison ship. Uh, ben Foster and Dennis Quaid's characters were supposed to be guards on that ship where something had gone wrong. And um, they sort of took that core idea. Alvart had written a script um, you know, years prior. He's, I, I believe, back in the 90s about a, a ship that was a, a colony ship, you know, pushing out to, to some new place for human beings to take off. And uh, they decided to sort of combine those two ideas and, and rework the script together. And so they, they share script credit on this. And the film that we get is one that is, again, focuses on the ship, which has been renamed to the Elysium, uh, an obvious Greek mythology reference there. And they are on a 123-year voyage to a new planet. Was it Tannis? Mm-hmm. Tannis. Um, a new planet to uh, recolonize because Earth is, is collapsing. Um, and 
you know, they need a, a new a, a new chance at life. And this is the closest one that they've found with the, the right conditions. So there's supposed to be like 60,000 people on the ship, something along those lines. And they're going to start this massive, you know, repopulation effort. We see right at the beginning, uh, you know, as we're sort of swooping through the ship, that, that something goes wrong on Earth and the ship loses contact with them, uh, which I guess you could say is the inciting event for the events of the film, is the, the realization that Earth is, is gone, right? That nobody's coming back. But, you know, everything really begins, I guess, with, uh, you know, Foster waking up so uh before we get into the, the you know the debrief of the film and sort of stepping through it a bit at a time let's go over the failure but uh you were the one that really wanted to to you know go over this one so what draws you to it okay um for me i i thought it was an interesting film that it's got some to me i think some underdevelopment in the script um probably because it's the marriage of two ideas. So it feels mm. like those ideas are not really all there. However, I like I like the premise. It may be derivative, but it's not a bad kind of derivative. Um, it's a premise that I don't see much past a certain era of like sci-fi horror and I I was sort of taken with it. I was like, this is at least trying to do something interesting. And yet it was just a massive failure. Like, nobody saw this movie. <laughs> yeah, I um, mean, and it was released. It, it was under-released. You know, it released in a lot of theaters, but it was not advertised. Um, I, I remember when it came out that, you know, just nobody knew about it. Uh, there was no no buzz. There was no marketing spend, or at least not enough. Um, you know, because this is not a genre that people will just naturally sort of go to, right? You're not just going right. to show up uh, at the theater and say, "Oh, what are you going to see tonight, honey? Oh, let's go see this Pandorum, right?" You know, it's the kind uh, of thing I show happen. up for, but I think I'm a special case. Right. I mean, the, you know, people who love this kind of movie will will absolutely seek it out, but it's not going to grab that general audience without a big push and some kind of understanding of, of what you're getting into. The name, as much as I do like the title and the title does play into the structure of the film and, and what's happening in it, it doesn't really convey much. Right. And no. A lot of sci fi horror film, I mean, Event Horizon, same problem. Right. It's a great title for the film. It's nearly perfect but you have to have seen the film for that to mean anything right you know (laughs) and and unless you're a real big fan of you know interstellar phenomenon an an event horizon is not going to mean anything to you uh you know a lot of the films we've covered fall into this category dark city yeah okay you know well i mean that's the struggle of science fiction i think eternally is that people just have to have something to latch on to and if you don't have good marketing with science fiction, you've got nothing. Yeah, um, you're not going to get that crossover success. It's just not going to happen. I mean, you know, we look at, at things like Inception and Interstellar, and it's like, yes, but think of all of the groundwork and, and advertising that was done with those films to ensure that people saw them, especially with Interstellar, because that's such mm-hmm. a movie that, like, why did anyone see that? Yeah, Half the people yeah. who ended up seeing it in the theater, I'm like, you were never going to like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's it's a perennial problem with the genre is how to communicate the ideas. Whereas the girl on the train, hey, you know what that is? It's about a girl on the train. I, she I saw something. She, she saw, saw something on the train. That's right. <laughs> that girl, she saw something on that train. Got to do something. About gone it. girl. She gone. <laughs> she's gone. That girl, she's gone. <laughs> I'm gonna see uh, that movie. You know, so I, I think. It's, it's quite a few things leading to its, its lack of financial success, at least. So in terms of its reception, which is you know part of the dual sting of failure for this one, uh, it has a 30% on the tomato meter and a 49% on the audience score. Uh, but again, the audience has only got about 100,000 reviews, pretty low, all things considered. Um, but the critics' consensus, um, I only grabbed a few because they were, they were all pretty much the same uh the biggest complaint derivative uh some said lazily derivative right like derivative to the point that they didn't try which i don't necessarily agree with but this is a film in, in a lot of ways it's some of the stuff that like neil blomkamp has done yeah right like you know district nine is, is a great it's a great movie they seized on the sort of like documentary in progress naturalistic shooting style that was popular in in that time period but a lot of what district nine is doing is derivative of other sci-fi as well but it, it flies under the radar so i i think there's a derivative is a natural sort of component of sci-fi because you're dealing with similar ideas robots aliens you know spaceships i mean these these things just sort of all congeal together and originality is key obviously but i i don't know about lazily derivative i don't i think they were trying but there's certainly some recycled ideas um so many of them focused on that um some people focused on what they saw as needless twists uh this film has two major reveals in it um one of them i I could do without it's it's okay but whatever um the second one i think is actually pretty good uh, all things considered but a lot of people you know are like they're asking questions that ultimately we're not going to care about because there's nothing to drive us forward uh i agree this the script does have issues i think the film pretty much falls apart in the second act yeah um they have a really really hard time keeping the second act moving what are the characters wanting what are they trying to do they introduce a couple of new plot threads that don't really go anywhere you know this the second act is is quite frankly a mess like it, it really is but the first act and and the last 20 minutes are really solid very good so i i certainly see those um, so let's read a couple of the, the, the negatives and then I'll, I'll, you know, I pulled one positive because I think he also <laughs> hits on some things. Uh, so Quaid and Foster, this is Nathan uh, Raven at the AV Club. Quaid and Foster spend far too much time trying to figure out what's going on, but audiences are liable to respond only with a dispirited who cares. Right, so he was was one that focused, and if you read his full review, he was was really down on the you know the twists, the reveals, the the sort of hanging questions uh, about the the mission and what these people are trying to do. Um, Rob Nelson from Variety, he just is the one that called it flat, lazy, and derivative. 
and Variety was, a, you know, it's a pretty big publication. It's kind of a bad review to get from them. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Frank Sheck from The Hollywood Reporter, a grizzled Quaid and an intense Foster do their best to keep straight faces, but this is not an effort likely to figure prominently on their resumes. Um, so it's just sort of dismissing the film as, as nothing that's going to stick, nothing memorable, which I, I think, again, is, is a bit dismissive of what the film is, is really trying to accomplish, but um, we'll get there. And then uh, in my, my sort of reading, the, the United Kingdom, UK and Europe in general, were much more fond of this, uh, which... I'm not sure I have an exact reason why. Um, it, it is a co-production with Germany, and, and of course Anderson is, is British, as is his producing partner, Jeremy Bolt. But in general, they seemed much more receptive to this. And I think this is, is kind of a hallmark of this genre as well, because we had... <laughs> uh, so we've talked about Annihilation a little bit before, the, the recent Alex Garland... Uh, Natalie Portman Jam, uh, which is an excellent film, right? But completely botched in its release because they chose to release it in theaters here in the United States where thoughtful science fiction and definitely thoughtful science fiction horror does terribly. (laughs) Yeah, does terribly. Nobody's going to go to see it. I went to see it. I enjoyed it immensely. Nobody else is going to go see it. And then in Europe and the UK, where generally they find themselves more willing to go see things like that in the theater, they decide to do straight to Netflix. And I don't get that because Alex Garland is a slightly bigger deal there. (laughs) Like you would think. Exactly. I think it was. That would have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Mark Kermode, uh, the uh, film critic for BBC Four, I think. Um, He said, this makes no sense. Because this would have been a film that in the UK would have filled theaters. People would have gone to see it. And it, it for Annihilation, not for Pandorum. I mean, obviously we don't know. But for Annihilation, he said, we, you know, it absolutely would have done well here. But they just released it direct to streaming. So we'll never know. So the, the UK reviewers, at least the, the several that I read through, much more bullish, right? Still had issues, but enjoyed the film more. So this is uh, Tom Charity from the Times UK riffing on Alien, Sunshine, and Resident Evil. The German director, Alvart, finds an effective balance between action excitement and psychological chills, which I think is the balance that they were trying to strike. Uh, the middle section of this film, and a bit at the end, is very action heavy, right? Big, well, scaled to the budget action set pieces. And, and you know, shot well with, you know, some, some quick editing techniques, some decent fight choreography. You know, again, it's, it's playing in a couple of different sandboxes and, and trying to sort of create its own universe, its own world, and, and doing okay at it for the most part. So, there was some some positivity out there, but the common problems that I saw, just to sum them up, um, many people mentioned that it felt like Quaid and Foster were slumming. Foster was <laughs> definitely on, on an upward, you know, Quaid was kind of whatever, but Foster was definitely on an upward swing. He had done 310 to Yuma, which of course got him a lot of attention. You know, basically he was on his way, you know, 
meteoric rise and and people felt this was kind of a step back for him so they, they dinged the film for that um because of its connection loose though they may be to the resident evil franchise got a lot of hate for that uh, any connection to to paul w sanderson sort of got some critical ire from quite a few uh, many people felt that it was too slow and methodical at the beginning and then sort of exploded into action at the end, so we had some pacing concerns. Um, the the twists and questions and, and the mystery at the heart of the film, many people wondered, you know, is it important, right? And so I, I think a lot of this is coming from the Alien comparisons because Alien has central mysteries, but they are basically shoved to the side for the sake of character drama, right? We don't spend the film trying to understand who the alien is or what the alien wants, right? right? The alien is the bad guy. You run from the alien, you kill the alien, you do what you have to do to survive. And and that's always been one thing, you know, since Ridley Scott sort of brought the science fiction horror genre roaring back to life with that film, it's it's been a, an expected hallmark of the genre, right? You don't waste time on those types of, of questions in your story. You just go. Um, which I think works for a lot of the projects. I don't know if it would have been the right choice for this one, right? They, they kind of have to explain where all these things came from to a certain extent. Uh, many people called it a Roger Corman level cheapy, right? That, Why are people so mean to Roger Corman? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a direct dig on Roger Corman or just an acknowledgement that Roger Corman mastered you know, inexpensive filmmaking, I suppose. But they said that it, it has that feel. And it definitely is. This is a 30 million budgeted film in 2009, right? That's, again, that's a, that's a, a low tier It looks good comedy. for being that cheap. It does. Alvart is a smart director, and he does everything that he can to hide the fact that he is stuck on a couple of sets, right? They've got, like, two hallways... And a couple of decent sized sets, and that's kind of it. And he really works very hard to to mask that, to obscure that, um, both with lighting and with uh, you know sort of various tricks and you know mirrors and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of people felt that the f the film felt cheap, and and uh, you know they're not wrong. But I think that Alvart does a lot with what he's got for sure. Um, the, the derivative nature of the story and the overall approach, huge. That was pretty much the common theme. Pretty much everybody had that to say. And uh, one, a couple of people made specific digs about it feeling like a video game, right? Which, again, I think mostly just somebody saw Paul Anderson in the credits and said, oh, I'll make a video game reference because Paul Anderson. Resident Evil, you know, you get it. <sighs> <clears throat> but so those are the the big issues that people focused on with this one. And uh, again, I think all of them are rooted in in some measure of fact. But you know, eleven years on, looking at where horror has gone, and and arguably, and I would argue this, horror is now more accepted and more quote unquote mainstream than it's really ever been before i mean maybe in the heydays of the slashers of the 1980s did we have a, a more normalized sort of relationship with horror films but you know there's you know an entire streaming service devoted to horror netflix is is churning horror out by 
the dozens. I mean, even uh, Jason Bloom and his Bloomhouse brand, they've got uh, a whole series of, of you know direct to Hulu movies that run it's cr- through. It's it's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's it's nuts. We've had a real explosion and. Uh, I was listening to a podcast earlier today, and they were talking about this new um, video game that just came out. Was it Fan- Phantomagoria? I think is what it's called. Phasmophobia. Phasmophobia. There you go. That's the one. Oh, yeah. And and his feeling on it was that the game is basically garbage, right? Like it's 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 good, but it's it's very early. It doesn't have a lot to do. And he said. But with horror, especially horror video games, but I think this is also true of the genre itself, horror fans are willing to put up with crap to get that sensation mm-hmm. of, of visceral excitement, right? That That's 100% true. And, I have watched I, some bad movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there, there are plenty of them because horror is... Horror is one of those genres that it is really easy to pull off on a very basic level, but it is ridiculously difficult to execute at a high level. Um, It is deceptively complicated to make a a good, working, functional horror film. You know, which is why you can watch Halloween 40 years later, 45 years later, and still be absolutely terrified because it's it's brilliantly assembled because it has to be if it's going to be effective you know that's why halloween has stood the test of time you know arguably the, the first couple of friday the 13th movies i guess uh the first maybe... three of the nightmare on elm street movies yeah pretty much anything after dream warriors is crap sorry sorry freddy fans i mean i'll watch them it's fine but <laughs> i'm not sorry but <laughs> dream warriors is is the last one that i i really love like i i really love and i'll even defend uh nightmare on elm street 2 uh despite the fact that it is 100 percent a a gay allegory um and is absolutely dealing with that fact <laughs> it really is um, isn't it? through horror um and and a lot of people don't like that component of it i think it's it's a very strong film because it it sticks with one it does what the first one doesn't stick with one character as they deal with freddy sort of invading their world and it's it's a very powerful structure you know with three and on it becomes about the group right it's it's not about one i mean you'll have your hero kid or whatever but it's always about you know sort of the 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 way that Freddie plays the group off each other. Uh, and then, you know, everything after, I guess, Freddie's dead is like, eh, forget about it. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Watch them if you love them, but, you know, don't expect much. But, I mean, horror is just, it's really difficult to execute at, at classic levels uh, and, and to be truly, truly effective. And I think Pandorum is, is getting a little bit undersold by a lot of these reviews. Uh, it's not a perfect film, absolutely not, but it is doing some interesting things uh, and anchored by another really solid Ben Foster performance. So I guess let's get into it. We will uh, debrief on Pandorum and uh, sort of take our walk down memory lane as we go through it. 
so uh, as we mentioned, the film you know opens with a, a very traditional sci-fi film shot, right? The shot of the ship that everybody is on, from Alien to Event Horizon to every other sort of classic sci-fi, really just science fiction in general, right? This is the Star Wars shot. Hey, the ship is passing, and you're going to see the size of it, the scale of it. Um, it's it's a, a sort of staple of the genre. And so we get our, our beautiful sort of arching, you know, crawling through the massive ship of the Elysium. And uh, we zoom in on the cockpit and, and we're sort of immediately inside the ship. And we really don't leave the ship again for quite some time. Uh, you they know, spent all their money not, on that one shot. <laughs> they really did. Um, there are some additional shots at the end. It, it absolutely does have... Um, you know, some, some additional special effects shots, but most of this movie takes place inside uh, the Elysium. But the opening shot is the transmission, right? Where the flight crew, um, I think we're later told it's, it's flight crew two. So the second rotation of the flight crew navigating the ship. And I guess we're not really told how long these crews are supposed to serve. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's a few years where this, this small flight crew of three to five people is, is running the ship, making sure everything's working while everybody else is in hypersleep. And then they go into hypersleep, the next crew wakes up, takes over, and they just sort of loop through that way for the entirety of their journey so that everybody can reach Elysium together rather than you know one or two groups dying on the ship, basically. So uh, that in and of itself is a fairly clever approach. Normally in these, you know, somebody stays awake hyper in while everybody else is in hypersleep it's either an android like you know david and in the uh, alien films or there's some other you know sci-fi convention where you know the people live out their whole lives on the ship or whatever and then die i do find um, it interesting that there is no major technology in the film that it almost avoids having something like an android or, you know, a, a supercomputer or, you know, the ship itself, like in Event Horizon. There's really nothing like that. And I sort of expected that when I watched the film. Yes, there's not much in the way of, you know, gotcha tech, where it's like we we really needed to do a specific thing. And so we came up with a technology to do that. It does have hypersleep. Right, I mean, we've we've got that, which is is kind of a sci-fi convention. We don't exactly know how that. Would but they work. are traveling in space, so we have to figure something out. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, I've I've enjoyed you know many colony ship stories about, you know, you you basically just go on to the ship knowing that the first several generations of people on the ship aren't going to to actually see the destination, and that's always fun to play with, but that's not the point of this film. That's not really what they're trying to do. And ultimately, the you know, being in hypersleep becomes a key plot point, right? Because it obfuscates the passage of time, right? We don't know how long this has been going on. And, and that's a, a very specific component of what this film is trying to do. So in, the Pandorum receives, uh, or, or the Elysium receives a message. In this case, it is that Earth is collapsing, uh, which we don't, again, know the circumstances. It's not really heavily explained. But we do know from, from later in the film that Earth was in significant trouble 
right? Uh, and even the opening credits sort of indicate, you know, food shortages, problems, issues going on. But they're, the way the film seems to indicate it, Earth like straight up just explodes. Yeah, like he's, right? it's gone. Things, it blows up. It's there and then it's no longer there. Uh, so that in and of itself is is also kind of interesting. Uh, again, they, they don't <laughs> they don't really try to um, explain it or uh, you know have it make sense. I mean, that's not really the point. They let you figure that part out. <laughs> yeah, you know what you're doing. Um, but it's it's a conceit. And so it, we see them. We do see young, young uh, uh, Cam Gigande in the background you know, hearing this message. Uh, and then, you know, we pretty much cleanly jump to title. And then um, uh, a face, a woman, right? Uh, presumably Ben Foster's character, uh, who's Corporal Bowers, I believe it's Corporal, um, presumably uh, whatever dream he is having. Uh, and then he awakes and, and, you know, we get, this film does have some pretty well executed jump scares. Uh, I will say like they, you know, Alvart knows how to use a sound stinger and, you know, throw a, an unsettling image at you very quickly, which is, is always nice. Not all directors know how to do that. And Alvart certainly does, but um, Foster Awakens and, and the movie's kind of like straight off the bat. Um, Alvart's editing style, a lot of this film is shot handheld. I guess we can throw that out right away. Yeah. Which uh, I don't usually like. Yeah, it's and it's rough at times in this movie. It's obviously being done for budgetary concerns. They're moving quickly. But the, the handheld work can be a bit disorienting in this film from time to time. Uh, it's very fast. It, it reminds me a lot of that early 2000, quite frankly, the, you know, it's the same type of style that I associate with Paul W.S. Anderson in a lot of ways. It looks um, like one of his movies. <laughs> I, I, I really do feel like he consulted at least a little bit because Antibodies, which again is my only other sort of reference point for Alvart's work prior to this movie, um, it certainly has some of those elements, but it's shot much more traditionally. Um, a lot of it's outdoors, you know, standard shot, reverse shot stuff in, inside and like police interrogation rooms. This is, is, is a lot, it's a lot more avant-garde, you know, not avant-garde by like modern film standards, but it is certainly sort of outside the realm of what we would expect to, to see in, a, in a, a major Hollywood production, right? They're taking a lot more risks with things like lighting and editing choices and shot composition. Um, and, and to its benefit, right? I, I don't think the film suffers because of that, but if you generally gravitate to more sort of locked off filmmaking techniques where everything's nice and clean and, and the camera moves very deliberately, you're not going to get a ton of that in this movie. Um, but the handheld nature of it allows it to feel very claustrophobic, which is is really it's really one of the key components of the film, especially the opening. Uh, the opening is it feels more horror than sci-fi. Uh, lots of little hallways, lots of jump scares, lots of loud sounds, lots of uh, non-standard lighting. And then things sort of, you know, 
sort of move away after that into the more sort of action sci-fi stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I think the opening of this film is, is really compelling, right? Uh, Foster awakens. He's obviously in, in tremendous pain. Um, I, I don't yeah, know like if there's a shock effect. involved. Right. Waking up is waking up out of hypersleep, which we eventually do find out that they've all been in hypersleep for a really long time. Like a really long time. And so that's probably a huge component of, of the volume of disorientation that they all, you know, sort of experience. But the the most interesting thing is that when they come out of it, they've almost got like a second skin on. I know, it's so gross. <laughs> uh, it's it's a really effective, I mean, it's very subtle. It's, it's uh, again, I'm sure it's expensive. I, you know, I have no idea how much a, you know, sort of, latex or silicone bodysuit for somebody would cost that's kind of what it looks like and they it looks like they might have just uh, put a layer of just liquid latex over it in which case that's pretty cheap to do and is a, sure. a super effective trick um, yeah because it, it it's like hanging loose it's and they have to eventually like tear it all off and, <laughs> and you know sort of like uh, you know, disconnect themselves from this sheath that they've been stuck in, and uh, it's it's a very effective technique. It's it's if it was simply done and cheaply done, then they absolutely got their money's worth for it. <clears throat> and we could see it a couple of times. Several characters sort of come out of hypersleep in the film, and they're all in that condition. But you know, for the first couple minutes of this movie, it's it's just been Foster. And it's basically wordless. I mean, he's not really talking. He's just trying to sort out what's going on. So we see the other cryopods, and you know, there's one labeled Cooper, and that one's empty already. Um, he learns his name from uh, his own pod, implying and, and clarifying for us as the audience that, that he doesn't have much memory of what has happened to him or where he's come from. Again, another fairly tropey slash standard sci-fi conceit. When you come out of hypersleep, especially a long one, uh, you have memory issues, right? You don't remember stuff like you should. Then uh, we're, we're very quickly introduced to the fact that something is wrong with the ship, right? The lighting here is incredibly moody and well done. It's... Um, mostly being lit through, at least at the beginning, through glow sticks, right? And just very cool. Again, this this feels very early 2000s to me, like a lot of neon lighting, you know, a little bit like Blade, <laughs> you know? Um, Stephen Norrington's Wesley Snipes classic, which I know is like 1998 or whatever, 1997. But it's iconic. <laughs> it is. And... Uh, Honestly, I, I didn't love that era of filmmaking. Uh, Guillermo del Toro did a lot of that stuff in the early 2000s. Um, you know, his Blade sequel, everything was brown, everything was red, everything was green. Um, you know, and, and at the time, I, I didn't really care for it. I, I much prefer non-highly saturated, more naturalistic lighting in, in films. And in sci-fi, I feel like that's that can sometimes be important to ground what people are seeing in reality, right? The more unreal you make it look, the harder it can be for them to grab it and say, okay, I believe that this is really happening. 
Um, you know, a lot of people who talk about not liking, you know, big successful sci-fi like Star Wars, a lot of it comes down to that kind of stuff where they say it just doesn't look real to me. It doesn't feel real, even though that was one of Lucas's main concerns that it feel real. Um, you know, well, so you for failed. some people, it's it's still it's still beyond the pale, right? It's still just too weird. Um, but as the sh the ship is failing, um, we had seen Foster like he he like tries to break into one of the other um, hypersplit pods because uh, he sees somebody in there and he can't get it open. But then when the ship begins to fail, uh, it kicks open another pod, implying that. It's it's the reactor failures. It's this power surge stuff that's causing the the pods to break open in the first place. Um, so then, very quickly, we get one of the main, uh, I guess you'd say, goals for the characters in the film. And that is to get back onto the bridge. They are are locked out of flight controls. They're locked out of the bridge to see where the navigation is going, and they're in some kind of like ancillary. Uh, almost like a ready room where everybody would wake up and get briefed and then you know go to work i guess it's kind of weird that they can't get to the bridge you s that seems like something that would not ever get disabled or mm -hmm. unreachable but i'm willing to let it go <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuck um, out to me a little bit i'm like well why would they ever make it so you couldn't get to the bridge of the ship and fix things right i mean i know in some in some, you know, real naval ships, the bridge, you know, can be barred off in the case of, uh, you know, some sort of bad thing going down on the ship and the captain can retain control. But in this particular case, it, it seems like an ill-advised thing, uh, for sure. Of course, at this point, uh, Bauer and uh, Peyton, Dennis Quaid's character, all they know of each other is their rank, right? Their memories are both shot. They don't know who they are. So Bauer is a corporal. Peyton is a lieutenant. That means Peyton is in charge. And they kind of run with that, even though they don't really know exactly why, right? They can't define for each other who they are or what their roles on the ship are. Uh, everybody does have tattoos, uh, sort of a barcode on their arms that define you know what section of the crew they're a member of so they're both of the the flight crew and uh i think bauer says he's flight team five or flight team six right so he was supposed to be later in the flight team rotation that he was, was woken up and uh peyton and he just assumes that peyton was a member of his flight group as well which uh, probably a bad assumption. Yeah, you shouldn't but... just assume when you meet strangers on a spaceship that they're on the level. Right. But maybe but... they didn't watch a lot of science fiction movies like we have. <laughs> no, they may not have that reference point. And Dennis also... Quaid seems like such a nice guy. Right. I, I think that that's one of the things that Quaid does bring to this pretty much right away is that there is there is nothing seemingly suspicious about him from the jump he seems nice he seems genuine maybe a little bit of a butthole uh from time to time but you know the as an officer on a ship you would not necessarily uh be surprised and, and he's a little behavior. strung out but so is foster so you mm -hmm. kind of just assume that that's normal to be strung out yeah and i will say that foster's 
intensity level throughout the entire film is just 190%. I mean, dude is dude looks like at any time he's just going to have a brain aneurysm and just go <laughs> pop. He's having a cluster headache right now. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm I like Ben Foster as an actor a lot. Mostly because of his ability to do this, uh, to maintain this kind of intense level of involvement from scene to scene, from moment to moment for the entire movie is is pretty awesome, all things considered. Um, and you can feel him trying, even in scenes that that don't really demand it, him trying to maintain that that intensity, that drive, like we've got to go, we've got to go. One of go. my my favorites that I mean, we'll get to it, but just since we're on the topic, one of my favorites is when he meets um oh, I can't remember his name, the the agriculture farmer guy. Oh, um, uh, Kai. Man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um when he meets him and he can't explain to him that he doesn't know anything, just the frustration and the intensity and the the terror that he manages to get through just in that little scene of miscommunication. I don't know. I really like ben, but Ben Foster in this movie. He's yeah, kind of the reason that I come back to it. No, he is hundred percent carrying this movie on his back. It is, it is his, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and call it belief in what's going on that, that holds it together. Even when it, it sort of fails itself. Uh, in terms of you know filmmaking or script, you know Foster just keeps it going, and you know sometimes that's enough. I mean, a, a well acted character in a horror film can sometimes be enough. Uh, you know, we'll go back to Event Horizon, which you know also is, is pulling from many of the same bags of tricks here. You know, mysterious ship, characters who don't know what's going on, have to travel through it, have to discover these pieces. A lot of the reason why that movie works is because of Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Now, Lawrence Fishburne in that one is playing a guy who is normally confident, who has been so completely unnerved by his experiences on this ship that we see him falter. Right. My favorite scene in Event Horizon is when Lawrence Fishburne is just in the hallway by himself and he says, you know, just my God. You know, he he's just at a loss. I'm gonna go to with next. fuck this ship. That's that's it yeah, for me. That's <laughs> a good one too. But I, I like the moment before he decides fuck this ship. I, that's because that's where you need that, right? And in this one, you need Ben Foster confidently moving through this, saying, "I'm gonna get through this. I don't know how. I don't know why, but I must." And and I think that it keeps it going. So I agree. really. Um, really what we we get here since they can't access the bridge uh foster decides to go up into the 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 air shaft network to try at least to um you know get the door open all right so that they can uh, explore the ship move into the bridge whatever they need to do and i, I guess quaid figures out a way to get the door open to where he didn't have to go up there kind of halfway through which is you know it's a bit funny but it's it's supposed to sort of amp up the tension that you know he's doing this for no reason 
But I really love these sequences, and we get a taste of how Alvart is going to be choosing to deliver information to us in the film. Um, he is on a constricted budget, right? $30 million for a sci-fi horror film is not a lot of money. He's on a constricted budget, so he's going to use his space intelligently. So we're, we're up in these tunnels. There's wires hanging. There's tubes hanging. You know, he's, it's almost like he's being born, which we come, we come back to that image a little bit later. But um, it, it's, it's like he's being sort of pushed out of the womb. Everything is, is, is wrapped around him. He's kind of stuck. And then I, in another sort of early favorite scene, he falls down a shaft headfirst. That is great because you really don't expect that to happen. <laughs> no, it's very sudden, and and then he looks over and he sees Cooper, right, the the empty spot that had already been woken up, and he is trapped in the exact same position that he finds himself Ugh. in. Right, he is stuck upside down in the shaft. His neck is is broken or bent. And, and Foster is staring this dead body in the face and has to make a decision. Am I gonna, am I gonna stay here and die like this guy did or am I gonna keep going? And, and he figures out a way to keep going. And, and I think it's, it's a lot of really subtle and, and in some cases not so subtle. I mean, we don't have to you know, beat around the bush about it, I guess, that, that Foster has this kind of internal drive. He has manifested his fear and his discomfort and his his disarray, right? Like, I don't know what's happening. And instead of manifesting as fear, it's manifesting as, as a drive to know. And I think that, you know, for a lead character in a role like this, it's perfect. And it tells us a lot about him right off the bat. And, 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 you know, it, it establishes him as a character that we can, we can follow confidently through this this series of strange events and again he's he's just sort of carrying everything right he's he's in every scene of this movie and uh or very nearly and uh, and that's you know definitely for its its betterment so he gets out of the 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 tunnels or the the air ducts and he quickly moves through the tunnels and again alvart chooses to shoot everything pretty tight right we stay close um, the lighting is very dim, so they can redress this hallway very easily and use it in other circumstances. It Again. is kind of amazing how they make the environments look different. Because it, you do know it's the same hallway. The more I watched it, the, it over the, the years, hallway. it's the same. <laughs> they're, they're putting some doors in from time to time, but it is 100% the same stretch of hallway. Now we will put a box in the corner. But, I mean, again, you work with the budget you have. And they did have a real location. There was some kind of warehouse or, or abandoned mill that they used for some of the wider shots, the bigger things, to look sort of semi-industrial. But this is very much a set. So up until this, the film has basically been a kind of single person, don't know where I am, must discover where I am, mystery story. Now we take one of several hard turns in this storyline and introduce that, no, this is not a sci-fi film where characters are gonna figure out how to fix a ship and make it to the, you know, the home, the new home world. This is something else. So as he's going through the hallway, he discovers 
a very, very well manufactured dead body. Um, just a very, a great prop, right? Yeah. A really, really well done physical prop. And there are a lot of good physical props in this film. And a lot of good, uh, yeah. you know, practical effects. Very much so. Um, and, and without them, I think this would be a weaker film. Uh, you know, in 2009, it would not have surprised me that somebody, even with a $30 million budget, wouldn't have considered some CG creatures for this. Uh, they resisted that urge. I imagine probably because of the volume of them, right? We're not talking about a couple. There's a bunch. But still, I still could have seen some producer being like, hey, man, we could probably save like 20 million. We could try to save like 2 million bucks if we did these all as just CG replacement characters. It's always real dark, man. Don't worry about it, dude. It'll look fine. Like, I, I could see that happening in 09, 100%. I can and too. I'm so, so glad that they didn't go that way. Um, because what is revealed, right? When he stumbles across this dead body, it's a trap. And yeah. it is a trap that has been rigged by another survivor. We don't know anything about her yet, but she becomes important later. But it is a trap for these creatures that are on the ship. Um, again, Foster is forced to do a lot of work in a very short amount of time to imply his fear, but also his, his resolute nature that, that he's going to get away from this. So he's forced to climb back up into the, the uh, air ducts he came from to hide, uh, which he does so successfully. Um, but these creatures on the ship are... I mean, eventually it's revealed that they are mutants, right? They are, are mutated mutants. individuals. Yes, they are mutants. <laughs> um but they are, are, are mutated humans who have evolved rapidly on the ship and have developed into these sort of tribalistic, cannibalistic uh, groups. Um, so the, the body that was, was hung in the... Uh, the, uh, the body that was, was hung in the, the hallway was a... A booby trap to try and kill a few of them because they're cannibals, which he interfered with and then, you know, was was rendered ineffective. But he escapes, gets away, and is able to report back to Peyton that there are, you know, creatures, monsters, something on the ship. And, and here's where we do see Foster sort of break a little bit. Right, like he's genuinely horrified by what he's seen, he and they really are really horrifying. Like these mutants are. are super scary. Um, I um, love the makeup job. I mean, we haven't really even seen them yet at this point, but still, just even the suggestions, the the noises, it's really good. Definitely. Um, so a lot of the first part of the film is bathed in a lot of green light from the glow stick, the the flare that he's using to navigate. Throughout this section of the film, everything switches to harsh blues. The light, uh, I guess you get the, the flashlights that the colonists all have on their equipment is a, a sort of, you know, deep blue. And so there's a lot of blue light in this, which, you know, I, I don't mind. It, it's a little, it's a little bit annoying that we don't get 
a little bit more variety in tone uh, because he he Alvart really relies on this blue for for quite some time. That is that's <laughs> um, a shame, but it does not look bad. It absolutely doesn't look bad. It, it it it's just a choice that I think if we are talking about that widespread appeal, right? People watching this and being like, "Oh, that's really cool." I I don't know if it's going to do that because again, it feels very. It just feels very music video to me. Yeah. Right? It it feels like the choice of a music video director saying like, "Oh man, we're going to make Madonna look great in this." And we're. Gonna it's a little cheap. Lighter. Yeah, and it, it that's exactly probably why it's being done. You can hide a lot if you don't light well. And. You know, so so as Foster is dealing with this, we we get a little. Um, I guess a flashback. I don't know if it's especially clear that it's a flashback. We get a couple of these throughout the movie. Presumably these are, are Bowers when he's a younger kid, uh, sort of as the Elysium mission is is being introduced. And and they've found uh, Tannis and they're they're gonna you know push out to the stars. You know, we see him kind of growing up with this knowledge that, you know, this mission was going to be taking place at some point, which obviously plays into why he chose to go on it. Uh, good choice on his part, kind of. <laughs> not at the moment. It's not a great choice. It'll work out in the end. <laughs> but it seems to work out in the end. Um, but we get this little flashback sequence. We see him as a young kid sort of smiling as, as the planet's discovered. Uh, I will say his dad... Uh, in that scene is the lead from antibodies yeah um and he's great uh in antibodies and he's you know he doesn't say anything or really do anything in this one but it was it was nice to see him and then we're you know as we kind of go through these flashbacks we we see that foster had a wife or a girlfriend i think a wife and he's he's trying to to remember through the flashes who she is you know, is she on the ship with him? What have you? And that becomes, that's one of the plot threads that I think is, is weakest in the film. Because through Foster's driving force now, moving forward, apart from fixing the ship and the reactor, is to try and find his wife, who he believes would be in the additional crew section, uh, basically like the, the spouses and, and family uh, section of the the crew compartment and so now he has this driving force to try and, and find her and figure out where she is um which spoiler uh she ain't around yeah and not really for any of the reasons that you might have concocted during the viewing of the film which is what i didn't like about that little mm -hmm. story element i was like why even put it in there if it doesn't even do anything. <laughs> right, because what we come to find out is that she she elected to not go on the mission, right? She did not go with him to Elysium. So um, I, I believe what we're supposed to, you know, the idea we're supposed to get out of that is that he had always wanted to go on the mission, right? That's why we see him as the little kid, you know, finding out about the planet. He'd always had it in his head that this was something he wanted to do, and he expected that she would, would follow him and go with him. And she didn't. It's this driving force in the movie that ultimately comes to nothing. 
right? Like it, it means literally nothing uh, for the remainder of the film. And I don't know, it, it just doesn't really go anywhere. And like, like you said, I, I kind of wish that they just hadn't included it. You know, why we have enough of a driving motivation for Foster, which is I have to repair the ship. If I don't repair the ship, we're all going to die and I don't want to die. You know, so this this motivation to find his wife just seems. I sort of wonder which script, which story that was from, because I don't feel like that. I don't feel like it hangs with the rest of his character very well, and so I sort of wonder if that wasn't patched in from, uh, like, not the char- not the the characters in the original script about you know the colony ship but rather in the one about space paranoia. And I've kind of, I wonder that, I don't know. Cause it just, the, the wife seems so pointless. Right. Um, uh, I, it feels like, you know, cause in the original, original script, supposedly he was a prison guard and this was a prison ship. So I don't think the wife would have been in that script. So this feels more like something from Alvart's script, which was, focused more on you know the colony ship paranoia these kinds of things because that's originally the ship was supposed to be called the pandorum and then once they changed it to the elysium they took the term pandorum and then applied it to this you know concept of space madness right it's just a lot of threads yeah it's it's a lot of stuff that in a in a sci-fi horror film you don't really need to have I can see why you would want to have it. Um, you know, the the romance angle is strong. I mean, it, we could go back to, to Dead Space real fast. What, you know, Dead Space is, is one of my favorite video games, period. Horror video games, definitely. Um, but the, the main character's driving motivation for the first chunk of that game is to figure out what happened to his girlfriend because she was on the ship when everything bad that happened on it went down. So I, I understand the the drive, right? It's an easy motivation for an audience to understand. Oh, I, I must, I must, you know, figure out what has but happened. But so is to my survival. Wife. But but yeah, survival is enough, right? There's a reason why aliens purity, right, and, and why James Cameron cut the fact that Ellen Ripley had a daughter from the second film even it's a nice detail but it's not necessary it's not necessary right the character doesn't need that motivation to be forced to go on their journey and adding it in while it may add depth in some ways it's not necessarily going to service the story and and i think we got a little bit of that here too but uh, one of the things the film struggles with so again the title of the film is pandorum uh, which is obviously just a, a little play on words for pandemonium, which of course is insanity, craziness, what have you. But in the film, in the in the context of the film, Pandorum is now that they've been in space and done space travel for you know, presumably many years, it is the condition where the stresses of space flight uh, and the, the long distances, the... the being stuck in, in, in the, the vast nothingness of space can cause your, your mind to go, right? That you, you experience a kind of ocean madness, right? Um, that you can't really uh, escape from. 
And so Foster's character, one of the quite frankly underbaked components of this story is that he feels that he is suffering from this throughout the film. And I believe the flashbacks to the uh, to the wife are supposed to sort of contribute to our understanding of that, to, to maybe help us see that he's, he's not in his right mind. Mm-hmm. But I don't really <laughs> think it works. It doesn't. Um, and it's not necessary, right? Like that's the other component. We, we already have a character in the story who, even though we don't realize it at first, is already suffering from Pandorum. And we don't necessarily need Ben Foster to also suffer from it to understand that it's a threat. Um, it does play into the end game a bit, but I have found it is a really, really tricky thing to build a likable, believable, and compelling protagonist while also making that protagonist potentially insane yeah that is really really hard to do especially Um, in a in a movie that's less than two hours (laughs) yeah i mean it's just it's not enough time to build that up because foster has these flashes these moments where he sort of drifts away and he has these flashbacks and he sees or or hears something terrible and and you know is it madness is it real is it not real you know, there, there's definitely some moments in the film that play on that, but for 90% of the movie, he's confident, he's capable, he's, he's you know, somewhat trustworthy. You know, like, it, it just, those two versions of the character don't really hang together. Um, and I'm going to reject the one that I don't see as often, which is the madness. Um so I don't know. It, it's something that I, I understand why they wanted to have it there. I think it could be a compelling component of the script, but I don't really think it works for Foster's character at this point. Um, it does for Quaid, absolutely for Quaid. Like that is, in essence, that is the performance that Quaid is building. You know, he seems fine, but in reality, something very different is going on. So after the the introduction of the the wife as a as a driving motivation uh he's continuing his way through these these hallways and and trying to make his way to the reactor to test it and he comes across another booby trap this one an engineer named shepherd played by norman reedus pre-walking dead norman reedus. <laughs> in a very short norman reedus cameo yes very much so I, you, people forget that prior to the walking dead Norman Reedus's main claim to fame was Boondock Saints. Yep. <laughs> and Boondock Saints was was and, and remains to this day a, a very successful sort of B-tier Quentin Tarantino knockoff film. But it by no means found deep cultural purchase. Right? Uh, Boondock Saints is not talked about. It's not well, you see. I Boondock mean, Saints is. is is talked about. It's it's a cult. Film, it's a cult but, classic. That's true. But uh, the second film did not do it any favors. That's for sure. No. Um, and that and actually came out the same year as Pandorum, didn't it? It did. Uh, very close. And it. I don't want to make it seem like I I'm hating on Boondock Saints. It's a it's a quaint, it's an adorable little film. 
Yeah. That way. It's just, it's interesting that Norman Reedus has gone to such stardom after that. Right. Uh, he really, really hit with Walking Dead and, and his career has been, you know, on the rise ever since. Anyway, again, I don't want to insult Norman Reedus. He's always been around, but he was known primarily for these bit parts, memorable characters. And uh, being know, a was, model. He was. Uh, he model. was, yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he was in Blade 2, right? Like that. Uh-huh. He, was, he was mechanic dude in Blade 2. Um, so, I mean, he'd been around for a long time, but he, he did a lot of, like, really small guest spots. And he had had a couple of little bursts of success. And then after Walking Dead, he could pretty much do anything he wanted because he's easily one of the coolest, if not the coolest character on that show. I haven't watched it for years. I have no intention of watching it because I think it's unfortunately devolved into something I don't really care for anymore. But the first couple seasons are excellent, and he's excellent in it. Um... So he makes a, a quick entrance as uh, Shepard. They have a, a really, really well shot horror sequence as the the creatures who are, are again ensconced in blue because they're they're lighting. You know, they, obviously it's supposed to be scavenged and scrounged lighting. It's all blue, so they they head down the hallways and they've got these little blue lights on their shoulders that shift. It's a great effect. They're coming around, they see them, they escape, um, try to hide. Shepard gets caught and, and basically disemboweled and eaten right in front of him. <laughs> and his, his only real purpose is to, to sort of reinforce the threat of these people and what they're doing, which has been hinted at, right? We sort of got the impression that they were cannibals, but this solidifies that, right? They are bad and they will eat you, so do not get caught. <laughs> Um, and he's really only rescued. There's a, a cool little action set piece. He sort of, there are a couple of spots in this where Foster's character sort of stumbles his way out of a door into a huge open chasm. Uh, they do it a couple of times, which I like because it gives you a sense of scale for the ship, which, you know, I don't mind. But he trips over a wire and gets his leg caught and then it winds up falling and then kind of winding up on the the underside yeah. of a, a hallway sort of hanging from the, the piping and stuff in the ceiling. Uh, and it was just, it was a neat little thing and, and everything seems fine. He seems like he's going to be okay. And then they start reeling him back up. And and that's when we're introduced to uh, Mon is his name, I believe. Uh, Kung Lei's character. Um, and he's is obviously being built up as the film's, you know, hand-to-hand combat badass. Uh, Kung Lei has had a couple of, of key moments. I think the thing he's most known for actually was, I think it was the year after this. Uh, he did The Grandmaster with, uh, I think, Jet Li. Um, and he was in, in quite a bit of that and, and you know, found some martial arts film success. He's done quite a few films in China. He made a movie with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I, I don't remember which one it was, one of the bad ones, but... You know, he's, he's, <laughs> so many of them, really. Yeah, there's pick one, really. Uh, anything Not Time than, Cop, the only one I like. <laughs> Time Cop, Universal Soldier, and I, I don't know, maybe Cyborg, if you want to go Ooh, back. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they have a brief meeting, and that's where we get you know the scene that you had mentioned earlier where Foster is, is, is just... I don't He's understand so you. frustrated. It's I so funny. Hear you. Yeah, it's just it's it's a very it's a good it's a good meeting of the minds scene uh, 
you know, new characters being introduced. Uh, and Mon is, is definitely hostile, right? He, he's not trying to necessarily be friendly, but it's obvious that he knows what a flight officer is. He, uh, he himself, he shows his barcode and he is an agricultural worker, right? So he's a farmer. It, it feels um, like he has more of his memory. It seems so. Right, uh, which you know, from a screenwriting standpoint, is a, a fun little little gag. The guy who can't communicate with the group is the one who knows the most. That's that's cool. I mean, that's a, a nice technique to throw out. Um, but but they they ultimately separate. Right, he's like, I, I'm not gonna stay with you or go with you because I I don't understand you and I don't know what you want. So they uh, kind of go their own way, but really in between that, we're flashing back to Dennis Quaid. Uh, Dennis Quaid has started hearing things. Um, so he's ostensibly, he's in this, this sort of ready room by himself. There's no one else around. It's, it's obvious that there's no one else around. The doors are closed. The air ducts are very difficult to navigate, as, as we saw with Ben Foster's experience. And he starts hearing things, though. So he grabs a pipe or improvised weapon. He's got uh, a yellow glow stick laying around. And I will say one thing the film is doing very well is making you think the ship is dangerous enough that what Quaid is doing right now is fine. Right, that that it's this is is expected and typical behavior, um, or at least you're willing to accept it as okay. There are things happening. There's sounds being made, so of course he would react this way. Um, this is also the first shot where we get that he has a, a nosebleed, um, which becomes you know, important. Somewhat later. important. <laughs> <clears throat> right. I mean, and, and there's really no reason to to beat around the bush and discussing and discussing it. Watching this film through again, you begin to see that all of Dennis Quaid's behaviors from the moment he wakes up, that this disease, this pandorum, the, the space sickness, uh, he is suffering from it. Indeed. Uh, In a very big heavily. way. <laughs> he, is, he is paranoid. He's hearing things. Um, and, and what is ultimately revealed is that he is not Lieutenant Peyton, um, that he killed Lieutenant Peyton, used his pod, and is in fact the uh, corporal that we saw at the beginning, played by Cam Gigante, uh, who is about to be reintroduced to the film uh, as if being born out of the womb of the ship, uh, which, what a great scene, as he's it, being birthed yeah. from those hoses. Uh, he's completely nude. He's covered in, in, in slime and goop, a very goopy sequence, and I love, I love good goop. Um, but, uh, in, in the goop, he, he sort of emerges and, and Dennis Quaid sort of, you know, takes him in. Uh, it's all fake. It's, it's nothing, right? He's yeah, this didn't just, happen. No, he is, is, is envisioning this in his mind because he is bananas, uh, and has been for a long, long time. Uh, but the movie first time through, it does a good job of making you think that he's not right. That he is just hearing legitimate threats on the ship. It sets up enough with Foster in the beginning that, that you you believe that he's a good guy. Right. 
and, and Dennis Quaid, if I was a casting director trying to hire this part in specific, Dennis Quaid is definitely somebody that can pull this off, right? Short of America's Tom Hanks, right? Um, but he has lost his mind and he has a lot to do with the current state of the ship, uh, which we, we do get told in an interesting way later in a, a sort of non-standard exposition dump. But we, we sort of move back to Ben Foster's character, Bowers. He, again, almost stumbles into a chasm, but this is a chasm of uh, open shipping containers. And he finds, I don't know if it's the place where um, Anche Trower is... I don't think she's been living there, but it's almost like a secondary base of operations or something. Like there's some yeah. food, there's a bed. Uh, maybe it's where uh, Kung Lei's character, Mon, maybe that's where he's living. We don't really know. But he stumbles across this place and then he has a confrontation with uh, Anche Trow's character is uh, Nadia, I think. I don't know if she's ever actually named in the film. I don't think either of them are. Uh, I think there's like maybe a plaque somewhere that you read that has her name on it, but it, it really doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, but but she attacks him and he finally uses uh, he has a, a wrist mounted energy weapon um, that was apparently part of his like standard gear. Uh, I, I don't I kind of expected this at least the first time I watched that I kind of expected one of the cannibal creatures to have one yeah because right? it's it's pretty heavily implied that one of the cannibal creatures is a former commander um, and that would make sense i mean that would that actually would have driven home some stuff if they had done that <laughs> right um but he's able to to get their attention and, and basically convince them that they need to uh, to work together Right, that it would be better for them instead of fighting amongst each other, getting hurt. Uh, and man, there's a couple of great stunts in the sequence where they have this little fight. It's again shipping containers. It's all bathed in red light. It just looks like blood everywhere. There's a bunch of like uh, garbage can garbage bags yeah. in the bottom of the hold. And when the red light shines on them in a couple of sequences in like the bird's eye view shot, it, it just looks like guts. It just looks like meat down there, which I, I have to feel is is somewhat intentional like the, literally looks like a meat grinder the gross out stuff in this film is really effective and i i do have to say that's one thing that as a fan of horror and science fiction and the marriage of the two is that a lot of sci-fi horror doesn't push gross no no i i think you're right uh i think that's why event horizon is so memorable um is because the the horror in that I mean, a man gets skinned alive in that. Movie. Oh my god! <laughs> um, I mean, there's a, a floating frozen corpse that collapses into chunks in that movie, uh, which was Paul W. Sanderson has an obsession with you know cutting Corpses. human bodies into chunks. <laughs> but uh, but in, in that movie especially, it, it certainly you know <laughs> certainly plays. And yeah, this one definitely has that quality. Um, so one of the things that this movie struggles with, honestly, is exposition. How is it giving yeah. us the story? Um, you know, say what you want about Christopher Nolan. There are many things about him as a filmmaker that are frustrating. His inability to shoot two things happening at once in a scene is <laughs> one of them for me. Uh, everything is one shot to one action every time. It's really annoying. But 
one thing Christopher Nolan is a master of is the delivery of exposition while things are happening. Uh, this movie, things happen, and then we and come then to you're a, told things. <laughs> yeah, and then we come to a dead stop. Right, nothing else is happening. And that was one of the things. notes that I made while watching this time. I was like, "Is am I?" Where is the juice for these expository scenes? And the film goes out of its way to give you flashbacks, but it doesn't do any of the exposition in those flashbacks. No, it'll it still instead the need to explain itself. Yeah, it'll still cut back to a character who then f- tells you what happens in the flashback. Right. It's it's an interesting thing, and and some of it may be. Um, I don't get the impression that this had a lot of studio interference. Thirty million dollars is it's a lot of money. As a person who has a regular job and does regular things, it pains me to say, well, $30 million isn't that much. But honestly, on a $30 million budget, a studio is not going to care too much about what this movie is doing. But that almost feels like a studio note, right? It feels like Dark City having to have the Kiefer Sutherland voiceover at the beginning to explain itself before it explains itself. Exactly. It's it's that same setup that we see so often in sci-fi films where, you know, if you just trust your audience to, to follow along, you'll, you'll be okay, but nobody believes that that's the truth. Um, so in essence, uh, Nadia, uh, Ante Trao's character, she, takes them back to her her home on the ship where we find out that at some point she was a i guess she was a botanist she was some sort of scientist or researcher and that the ship in addition to carrying people is actually carrying it's it's an ark right it's it's carrying all of the pieces of earth yeah they're not and, really making any any they're not mincing any words <laughs> about what it is yeah, like they're they're hitting it right on the nose because again, this is exposition dump, you know, scene seven, and and we have to let our audience know what what's going on here, um, which again, I don't, I don't think this is a big reveal. It's treated like one, but it's not, and it's cool. <laughs> don't get me wrong; it's it's a neat concept. We've seen it before, but. Again, I don't know why it's given this this sort of weight in the film, right? I think it would be much cooler to have her come back and just have all of this biological equipment. You know, they're all suffering from memory loss. Every single character in this movie, uh, save perhaps for, for Mon. So I think it would have been much cooler to have her come back and be like, yeah, this is this is where I woke up or... You know, this is where I stay and, and, you know, look at all this cool stuff. And then they hash out together. Oh, my God. You know, instead of her just being yeah. like, yeah, you know, I, I know what this is. I've always known what this is. You know, bitch. It's like, well, okay. She you just know, has not, all the answers. <laughs> right. It's like, why not have the characters figure it out? Or why not have the characters, you know, look out at the vast expanse of what this is and say, oh, my God. it, You know, we're not just carrying people. We're carrying, you know. The, the future of humanity or, or whatever you want to say it would have served the same purpose perhaps with a little bit more effective uh you know push behind it uh but then we get a bug eating scene which is awesome yeah um now i i read this on 
on uh, a trivia page, so I don't know if it's true. But supposedly, Foster specifically did not want to cheap out on you know the truth of the moment uh, and insisted that he eat real bugs for the scene. Uh, actual living insects. Nothing wrong with that. No, I mean, I, I appreciate that as a quality. Uh, but so when you when you watch Ben Foster pop that grasshopper into his mouth and shout down, it was a legit grasshopper. His facial expression is, is honest and true. Uh, that's the kind of acting that you can expect from Ben Foster. And I do. He chooses to take on. Um, you know, so again, it's it's a cool scene. I, I like what it's doing, but it's clunky. It slows things down, which happens frequently in this chunk of the film. And ultimately, it doesn't serve any purpose that we couldn't. We could have worked it in later if we're being, you know, if we're looking at the grand scheme of this. We could have yeah. said, oh, hey, this is, you know, you could have done that in a conversation on the bridge. Uh, that could have been something that Dennis Quaid's character reveals, you know, whatever. But again, it, it's it's a sort of secondary concern at this point. So then we move into a set that we see really, really frequently for the rest of the movie. They use it a bunch. And it's some sort of hypersleep pod room, uh, some kind of cluster of hypersleep pods. The concept of Foster's wife gets brought back in. He's like, she could be in one of these pods. Uh, Nadia insists that she wouldn't be in this area. You know, if she was brought on as a, a spouse of a flight officer, that this isn't where she would show up. And, and Foster doesn't, you know, doesn't believe her, isn't sure. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's a good moment. We kind of, you know, if we're going to keep up this facade of him searching for his wife that isn't even on the ship, okay. You know, I guess we need a little reminder that that's a thing. But it, it, all it does, again, serve us, serve to slow us down because what we've been told repeatedly is that the reactor is in bad shape and we need to fix it. So all of these diversions just take us away from that. And then we get an action beat right after the exposition beat. And, and here is, is where, again, this is not a long sequence of the film. It's like 10 minutes, but it feels really long. I agree. Because, because they, they fall through a grate, some kind of like trick grate. I don't know if it's supposed to be that way or if it's broken. It's not really explained. But they fall through this trick grate and they wind up in... Well, I'm just going to call it the descent hole because <laughs> this feels like they watched the descent and they were like, that shit is cool. We're going to do that. And then they did it. Right. Because this, this is where this is in a film that has a lot of derivative elements. This part feels the most derivative to me. And I, I've, I I've, it's kind of funny because it's it's really a small thing. Nothing much comes of it. But yet at the same time, the whole time I'm watching it, all I'm like, well, okay, we've got white skin beasties searching for them. You're hiding under the water to avoid detection. You know, it's it just, you're, you're 
it's just your eyes and nose that are out of the water and everything else is, is done. And then you turn around and you look and it's actually like a charnel house water and there's, you know, just dead bodies everywhere. Blech. It just, it, it feels a lot like The Descent. Uh, and not yeah. that The Descent's a, a, a brilliant film. Uh, Neil Marshall is by far one of the most frustrating filmmakers of the last 15 years uh, because he vacillates between dog soldiers which i think is one of the greatest werewolf movies ever and hellboy <laughs> remake, uh, which is total should never garbage. have been made <laughs> uh apparently it wasn't totally his fault i mean it seems like there were just tremendous production problems from beginning to end but i all i will say about the hellboy remake is that there is a cg helicopter shot in that movie that looks like a 14-year-old rendered it in After Effects on their computer on a Saturday afternoon. And it is it is one of the worst special effects I've seen in a in a decently budgeted feature film in a long, long time. Yikes. Uh, it's it's rough. I kinda I I, I kind of want to do it on here just so that we can both just shit on it endlessly. <laughs> I, I don't think it'll be hard. Uh, I think David Harbour is doing a good job, but I, I watched it again not too long ago. And the second time through, I want to say 40% of his lines in that movie, especially the the comedy lines, like the funny lines, are 80 yard off screen. Like inserted after the fact to try and make that shit. Funny. <laughs> Someone watched a cut of the film and realized, hmm, this isn't funny. <laughs> this isn't funny at all, and uh, we need more jokes. We right made jokes. a terrible mistake. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Hellboy is not an especially funny character. Well, he um, is though. He's, I mean, exploding cows. I mean, he's sarcastic. He's sarcastic and laconic. And and humorous in that way, but he's not like, hey, I got he's not jokes, goofy, you know, and, and they they kind of verge into the hey, I got jokes territory with him. <sighs> um, not always. Again, I think David Harbour is one of the better things about the movie. He does a good job as Hellboy. The makeup's all right. Um, they distended his jaw more than they needed to. I mean, obviously in the comic, he's just. It's just a square, you know, I mean, like it's literally just a square job, but, you know, you don't have to recreate that for the film version to still have it look cool. But I mean, in general, he looks all right. All right. So anyway, Hellboy. But, you know, so like Neil Marshall is not a is not a filmmaker that I would immediately look to and say, oh, I want to be like that guy. Right. But The Descent was such a success, um, especially in terms of you know horror. I can see where it would come from. And it is a creepy scene, you know, as they're in the water and they're surrounded by all this, you know, human flesh uh, disintegrating, um, or, or bones at least, I guess. They, I, I presume they eat the flesh part. But so we get this long action sequence. They actually fight one of them. Um, and and it's very bloody. Uh, just and, and Foster seems like really intense about it. Like we've talked about his intensity already. He's very intense. But in this one... He like stabs the guy and then he just has this, he almost looks like a Spartan from 300. It was like, you know, like this is Elysium, you know, or something like that. It's just very, very like this, I am enjoying the murder of you. Kind of thing. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, but then, you know, they, that happens again, nothing really comes of it. There's no story progression. They're just continuing to run from the cannibals. We don't know where they're running. We don't know what they're trying to do anymore. We haven't been told in a long time what their goals are, but we just get this like horror action sequence that is again, well shot, looks good. Some neat beats, but for what? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I, as a tag to the scene, really almost, again, apropos of nothing, we get uh, what I would say is the most... I don't want to say disheartening kill, but the most sort of disturbing kill in the film. Because the, there's another, like, reactor surge... And another hypersleep pod pops open. Um, And so we basically get to watch a guy wake up from hypersleep in the exact same condition that Ben Foster did earlier. Uh, I believe it actually is Ben Foster's brother, John Foster. I believe that's who that is. Oh, that's weird. (laughs) I want to cast you in this movie with me and watch you get eaten. (laughs) You're just going to get disemboweled and murdered immediately. Um, so it's been it's my weird. dream to watch you get murdered. That's right, little brother. I love you so much. I just want to watch you get torn apart by cannibals. Um, but so he he pops out of it and he's immediately killed. And, and like Foster tries to go back and try and help, which again, reinforcing his altruism, his, his dependability. Um, but apparently he's also insane at the same time. Uh, and, and, and then we just basically get to watch the guy get murdered, right, and torn apart. Um, the the main you know bad cannibal, I guess if you want to call it that, uh, stabs him through the head with a spear. It's like all right, that'll certainly do it. It's a lot. It's a lot for a little space movie. And again, it, it's it doesn't serve anything. And that's the problem. Like it it is horrific and it's executed horrifically, but it you know if, if we're did we back need to, to the, see that. Right. If we're going to go back to the derivations, the reason why John Hurt in the chestburster scene is so terrifying to this day is because you know him. You, yeah, you understand don't him. want anything to happen to him. Right. And when he begins to die in this violent and horrific way, you feel every punch against the inside of his chest as it's ripping out like it it's it's one of the reasons why that film is a a sci-fi horror classic you know and again i i'm i'm not a filmmaker i am a, a film commenter at best but what if this guy that's getting ready to pop out of this pod was important in some way right they needed him Maybe his pod was labeled, he's an engineer. He can help us with the reactor, right? So now there's an onus to save him, not just he's random guy that just so happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but he's actually like a potentially essential plot component. And, you know, he wakes up and we, we talk to him for a few minutes. Uh, I, man, I, I hate to keep going back to Dead Space, but in, uh, in Dead Space 2 the opening of that we discover that the the main character of dead space one who survives obviously has been in a a mental facility for quite some time being tested on and and the part of the mystery of that game is unspooling what they've been doing to you but the opening of the game is you being pulled out of your hypersleep pod 
and it's another guy and he's like, we got to get you out of here, Isaac, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, we're going to get you out. We, we, we know what we're doing. And then he just immediately gets murdered. Like the guy rescuing you immediately gets murdered by one of the creatures on uh, the ship. And, and you watch that happen right in front of you and then barely escape as he transforms into one of the creatures too. Right. And so it, it has this, you know, it's sudden, it's brutal, <clears throat> but there's enough of a connection right off the bat that you still feel something for this person that's being savaged in this way. Um, and, you know, after you watch what happens to them, you take control of your character and you, you know, you escape and, and end up killing them because you have to survive. So, you know, there's there's room here for more drama to be generated, but it just doesn't really it doesn't really have an effect. So it is horrific, but it is not truly devastating or or memorable. You know, beyond just the visceral component. Yeah. Um, you know, so again, it, this is the section of the film, right? The, this like twenty five minute chunk is the most directionless. It feels very vignette-y. Right, like we've just got these scenes that we know we need to sort of get to later scenes that are going to be important, but beyond that, not a lot going on. Um, as they make their escape, they go back into the vents, and somehow they wind up in this well. Uh, I guess we can call it. Uh, they they seal themselves in, and there's a, a new character introduced, and. So, Catherine, I want you to tell me, <laughs> why do sci-fi horror films, and, and maybe even spool this out to horror films in general, feel that as the end of your second act, you need to introduce an insane character <laughs> who has been dealing with these problems for who knows how long, get dropped into the middle of the character's journey, slow everything to a screeching halt, and then just deliver information to us. Because I, I don't know if I have enough fingers to count the number of times that this has happened. We need people to <laughs> in learn information, film. and we need it to be quickly. And we don't want to put a lot of thought into it. We just need that information to come. And I guess, and I guess, body count is another component. Um, it, the the most egregious example of this, um, well, I guess I can give two. The most egregious example is Lawrence Fishburne in Predators, <sighs> um, because he does the exact same thing. He shows up, he tells all the characters everything they need to know to understand the situation that they're in, which they have had enough experiences at that point to put together for themselves, but whatever. He really added nothing. He slows the entire film down for at least 15 minutes and then just promptly gets murdered. Uh, well, I don't know if he dies in it. I think he does live, but he tries to kill the other characters. He right? was murdered in the, my heart. <laughs> that's the other thing that this this character has to do. He has to betray the main characters. Um, the second example is Tim Robbins' character from the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds remake. Yeah. Exact same freaking thing. Two-thirds of the way through the movie, old man, creepy character, seems like he's going to help, actually betrays, puts them in danger. Screw that guy. And we get that guy here. And this one, his name is Leland. And Leland lives in this well and has been 
drinking the algae-infused runoff water, I think, from like, the reactor. We need a whole new unique way to make someone crazy. <laughs> That's right. But... So they're trapped down in this like low well. He's on this ridge up above. I guess they don't put together that they're in a really vulnerable position with this guy. Uh, ben Foster, we see him. You know, he's looking around and and uh, you know, sort of like scraping algae off the walls. Like there's something weird going on here, but nobody does anything about it. And and Leland fulfills his his story function uh, because he's been awake a long time. That's what he says. There's and always that character, too. Yeah. One who's seen it all. He's, he's been awake a long time. He's been awake. He's been watching, right? He's the crazy old man in the woods that's been paying attention this whole time while nobody else was watching. Oh, my God. <laughs> and and he plays them the, the transmission that we heard at the beginning, right? Earth saying, good luck. It's all you. We're toast. Uh, we done blowed up. Peace out. Right. And and he plays that for them, but then he continues the story. Right? That after the message was received, one of the flight officers, um, which uh oh what's his name? Gallo went crazy, killed his team, and then decided that he was gonna be the king of the and ship. How does he know this? Right. Um we don't no. Uh, Leland, <laughs> Leland appears quite old. Um, not that old. Seemingly. Could be wrong. Maybe it's all hearsay. Uh, maybe he found the well with all the creepy baby-faced people <laughs> scraped into the walls with surprising skill. Um, you know, somebody spent a lot of time putting those together. But all of this is, is intercut with uh, Cam Gigganday and, and Dennis Quaid having a conversation in very creepy blue lighting about what's best for everybody. And in essence, we're, we're, you know, very obviously being told what took place on the ship. And in essence, Dennis Quaid's character, who will soon be revealed not as Lieutenant Peyton, but as Corporal Gallo. <laughs> killed his entire flight crew and most of the rest of the flight crews and then decided to run the ship himself, right, to be the king. And if the king didn't like you, if you displeased him, then he would excise you to the reactor or, you know, the, the bowels of the ship, whatever. And so ultimately all of the cannibalism, the, the mutations, which I, I guess it's Nadia who tells us that all of them had some kind of recombinant DNA process that was designed to help them adapt to survive on the new planet and whatever else was going on there that they might need. So, I mean, that's a little bit of an interesting sci-fi convention, you know, that they've all been sort of evolutionarily treated to, to handle the rapid needs of, of living on a new planet. But so because of that treatment and Gallo, you know, sort of pushing people down into the bowels of the ship where there's no food and there's, you know, unsanitary conditions, he basically created this problem, this situation. Um, then he got bored. I believe that's specifically what Leland says. He just got tired of dealing with it. So he put himself back.
back into cryo sleep and disappeared. And, and Leland knows this. He I does. just that's what I I just can't get over that. I can't let it go. Every time he's opened his mouth, I'm like, and how do you know this? Yeah, because the timeline of this, as it's later revealed, is that they have actually been in flight. It was a 123-year trip. That's what Foster tells us at the beginning, right? So a long trip, don't get me wrong. But they have actually been in flight for 923 years. So I question when all this happened, right? Because supposedly he went nuts right after they got the transmission or, or soon after. So that would, if it was flight crew two, we can presume, and I, this is a presumption on my part, maybe that's 25 years into the journey that flight crew two takes over. Then say maybe the transmission came in 10 or 12 years after they took over. That's still like not eight, it's still like 800 years that is unaccounted for it's just it's the, there's math involved with this and somebody didn't do it <laughs> right um I, I think again this is an easy problem or potentially easy problem to solve because the thing that we don't have if we are in a a very tropey sci-fi horror story what we don't have are logs crew logs yeah and you can still have leland the crazy guy who tries to kill them because that's what he does i mean again the this character introduced two-thirds of the way through the movie is crazy old man crazy old woman whatever it may be same thing happens in book of eli they find the two fan they find the husband and wife who have the house in the middle of the desert they seem nice at first oh shit they're cannibals oh shit they're gonna betray us oh shit they get killed by somebody else like it's the exact same two-thirds twist. Again, I, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count how many times I've seen this in a science fiction or horror film. But Leland tries to kill them. He turns on them. He, he gasses them with something, which is where the green stuff that Ben Foster is playing with came from. And, you know, basically he says, you know, I, I got to eat. Right, and he said, and he had said when they first came in, they don't get in here unless I want them here. And they're like, "Why would you want them in here?" And he just kind of looks at them. It's like obviously to eat them, right? He's been eating them. Nothing That's... about this guy inspired my trust as a no, viewer. <laughs> there's, there's really nothing. But basically, Ben Foster exercises some some really good verbal wordplay and convinces him to let them go because if if they do nothing about the reactor, they're all dead. So if Leland truly wants to survive, he needs to let them go and let them finish their work, finish what they're trying to do, which he does agree to. Uh, after stabbing Nadia pretty severely, so she's kind of hindered for the remainder of the film, but um, so they get out of that. But I really think you could have dealt with their knowledge, like the unspooling of what truly happened by having the character. I mean, it's completely understandable at this point that there would be logs on a ship the captains would be recording logs the computer would be recording you know whatever like there's a billion justifications for why there would be records of what happened it's it's such a ship. thing in science fiction that we don't even question when there are ships logs anymore <laughs> no it's i mean captain's log 
Stargate 27.75. It's ubiquitous. We've returned to the Starbase around Tau City Alpha 5. You know, it's it's just, it's it's normal. Like, we completely expect it. I think the, as, as much as I like the, the, <laughs> the, the recombination of Dennis Quaid and Cam Gigganday into a single person. I, I I especially like the scene right after that when Dennis Quaid is just sitting there with like the sedative in his hand and he's like, oh, better, <laughs> right? Like it's like this moment of relief. I, I think that it would have been a much better reveal of what was going on for Dennis Quaid, who at this point still believes that he's Lieutenant Peyton, to pull up a log because he, he's sitting behind that computer terminal for... 60% of his scenes he's, he's he's finally cracked the computer he's opened up a protected file whatever man again whatever you want to do you yeah. can do and and he sees a video of himself or some variant of himself that's very similar you know doing some horrific shit or wearing a uniform that says the other guy's name and then he looks up and he's like oh damn again it's it's you know it's the choice of exposition that baffles me. Like, why did you choose to tell the story in that way? Right. The execution of the action, the sci-fi, the horror, excellent, right? But it's really where this film stumbles in the delivery of its core story beats. That's where it struggles. And I think part of it is because our two main characters, if you want to call them that, are on completely separate journeys for 95% of this movie. They barely interact. They barely have conversations. And exposition is, is often best, best shared and best arrived when you have characters who are sharing it because things need to happen. Yeah. Right? They're, they're talking about the things that must happen or doing things that must happen. And the exposition is revealed through that. And we just don't get a ton of that here. Um, usually it's it's one or the other. It's action or exposition. Uh, and we get another moment of it right here is as Foster, you know, the memories start coming back, which usually coincide with the reactor flaring up. But the memories start coming back and he remembers, you know, oh, no, it's not that my wife is on the ship or she's maybe dead. She never even came with me. And again, what are the characters doing while this revelation is being shared? They are standing, looking at each other. Yeah. In a room, doing nothing, right? He's staring off into the middle distance. She's standing behind him, basically staring at the back of his head as he's telling her all these things. And that's it. Like, could they be moving? Could they be climbing a ladder? Could they be. Could this be one of those lovely flashbacks that we've established at any other point in the film? And and we do. Not used. (laughs) Right. And we do go to one. We see, you know, Foster, you know, after he sort of delivers the the, the bombshell, quote unquote, um, we do see it. It flashes back to Earth and there's like a big flashing sign, very Blade Runner style of like, you know, Elysium, the home for heroes, right? Or, Or whatever. And and he's in some kind of you know full face mask because you know the atmosphere is just total shit. And, like we could and, have spent more time in those flashbacks. Yeah, instead. I mean, <laughs> they're more interesting expository beats than you know guy standing in in hallway telling you something. 
And um, it would make it would make the the destruction and the loss of the earth so much more meaningful if we were able to articulate a little bit more about what happened. Um, but we don't know. <laughs> so it's really hard to get on board with our characters at all. Right. It's it's just it's it's inefficient. Right? And you know, I'm not going to say that Alvart was an inexperienced filmmaker at this time, but it, this movie feels like they had specific things they needed to get through, specific pieces that had to be in place for the, the final set of reveals to pay off. And they didn't always know how to blend them with the action of the story. And that is a huge challenge. Um, it, it is very, very, very difficult to to give exposition concisely and cleanly in any kind of film, but definitely in one that has as much sort of world building to do as this one is trying to do. But it's you can still feel it, right? Now, fortunately, we're almost through this because pretty much from the moment that uh, the moment that Quaid is revealed, not as Peyton but Gallo, I think the film picks right back up. Like things just immediately take off again. Uh, so it really almost feels like maybe this film was sort of savaged in that second act edit. You know, like maybe there were more scenes and they cut them for time or there were more scenes planned and they didn't have the money to shoot them. Alvart has said in several interviews after the fact that there is a substantially longer director's cut of this. Um, even Yeah, like a director's that, cut, an unrated cut or something. Right. But, you know the film did not do well enough to warrant any kind of like director's cut release. Um, <clears throat> but it sounds like this is, and no film I guess really is, but this is definitely not like his original vision for the story. Uh, it has been, been cut down um, because 108 minutes is long. I mean, I'd say, you know, a hundred minutes is, is, is probably considered short by modern standards. Um, I, I think uh, I think Hubie Halloween, the the recent uh, Adam Sandler <laughs> Halloween movie on Netflix. I think that clocks in at like ninety two minutes, and it feels like ninety two minutes. Of course it does. But um, you know, like one hundred and eight minutes is 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 pretty short by modern standards. Most movies just shoot for the two hour mark at this point and and call it good. I sort of wish that this movie had done that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think in 2009 it could have. Maybe. That's very possible. Um, one way or another, it either needs to be trimmed more, like another 10 minutes gone, or we need that additional 12 to 15 minutes or whatever to continue fleshing out these characters in this world in ways that don't feel so clunky. Um you know, one way or the other, you know, there's there's definitely some weaknesses in uh, in how this was assembled. But again, we're sort of pushed back to the main goal that these characters have been ostensibly trying to get to for this entire movie, which is to reset the reactor, right? The thing that's going to blow up and kill them all, or die and take away all their power, so they'll all die anyway. And and we finally sort of get back on that track after all of these these frankly, useless interjections. I admit, I did kind of forget about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, apart from the flashes as the reactor is sort of like going out of spec or whatever it's doing, there's no discussion of it. You know, Foster doesn't 
I mean, he, he kind of tells Leland, hey, we have to fix the reactor. That's how we'll survive. So, I mean, it's not like it hasn't been, you know, we've been reminded, but the characters have, are not doing anything about it. There's like, no not, urgency. Yeah. They're not running down hallways. They're not sprinting through anything. They're just kind of lazily and, and you know, sort of doggedly marching their way towards it. And given that, given that this is very low budgeted, it's hallways and, you know, steel mills that they're using, what have you, it's, it, it's really difficult to understand the interior space of the Elysium. We don't, again, sci-fi trope, you kind of want to establish the parameters of your ship. The Elysium is very big. That's established from the opening shot. Okay, understandable. Very big ship. But I still kind of need to understand the visual language of how your ship works. What are these hallways? Are these what all the hallways look like? Are these maintenance tunnels? You know, is there a main corridor? Because the place where Dennis Quaid is looks, you know, it's got plating on the walls. It's kind of shiny. There's you know, guides and painting everywhere. And then, like, all the rooms that Ben Foster in look like, you know. Access tunnels. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, in Star Trek terms, they're the, the Jeffrey's tubes. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's not where the characters go to hang out. This is where they go to, you know, like, get work done. Like, is that what we're seeing here? Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's some visual, there's some dialogue about, you know, maintenance tunnels and stuff like that. But, but we literally see nothing else of the ship. Right, I guess maybe the bio lab is kind of bright and white and, and whatever. But it, again, I think this is a movie that would have been helpful to see him go through because because eventually, you know, in the next few minutes, they're going to come back to the bridge. Like that's their goal. Once they reset the reactor, okay, great, good job, thumbs up. Now you got to get back to the bridge so we can actually like get through the bridge door, do what we need to do, save the ship, blah blah blah. So we have no visual geography for what that means. And if the length of the film is supposed to be telling, this has been an incredibly long journey. Right? This is taking them right. a while. I think in the movie we're told that there's a time limit of like 45 minutes or something that they have to get down there before the reactor goes critical or, or does what it's going to do. But... It doesn't. It feels like this is taking them weeks. Like that's what yeah. it feels like. Well, like, again, you don't get any sort of urgency in their movements. You don't get any sort of of push forward, or if you do, it's in very short bursts. Sure. So I, I don't know. Some of that I think would help too, because you know, just understanding the space your characters inhabit and the the dimensions of that world are, are pretty key. But. Um, so as they're resetting the reactor, they do get there. You know, I do like the way that Alvar introduces both small and large complications, sort of stacking up on top of each other. So it's it, the reactor control panel. It's on some kind of you have to cross some kind of gangplank to get there. Again, it, it reminded me a bit of Galaxy Quest. Like who built it this way? Why would you do that? You know, like they're down in the tunnels and it's just things smashing and stuff cutting, and it's just like who in their right mind would design this this way? And and this kind of felt the same thing. It was like, who would put this tiny gangplank leading to this essential 
thing that you know theoretically you would have to do a lot if there was something wrong with the reactor because so he walks across this gameplay and it breaks of course and uh, he falls and is is hanging on uh, uh, you know another steel mill beam i don't know but the there's a nice nice horror scene here because the reactor since it's warm again sort of a tropey sci-fi thing uh all of the cannibal creatures or at least many of them i guess we can't say all for sure but many of them this is where they sleep this right? is they one s- of my favorite horror aspects of the film i love this, is, this whole section this is a great sequence it's really good um so he's struggling at first to just not fall into this pit and then he does and then he whispers zombies himself by putting on stuff that smells and looks like them uh very quickly very resourcefully and uh begins crawling through them right and this is really (sighs) tense and it's super well shot um Tons of great practical effects. The the makeup and and you know physical prosthetics on display are chef's kiss, right? Just beautiful yeah. work all around. Um, probably still done very inexpensively, simple latex applications, but it looks good. There's a ton of variety, right? You get the impression, you know, that they are these have you know evolved from actual people, from real people. You get and, a sense of, of some kind of society or civilization that's being built amongst mm-hmm. them. Yeah, a little bit of an I am legend thing going on, you know, yeah. that they've they've built a society for themselves, even though the conditions are horrid. Um, but uh, they reset the reactor, but the reactor reset when it vents, it's uh I believe we're meant to think that it kills a lot of them uh we only see a few but i mean there were hundreds of them gathered around the bottom of the reactor yeah. and and presumably they all get wiped out um so everybody kind of escapes and, and they begin heading back to the bridge which was the plan uh, leland makes it out first because he drops a flashlight that triggers all of them right he uh he wakes everybody up because they're all asleep and and then he you know absconds first and starts headed back to the bridge uh followed quickly by ben foster and and uh, nadia um mon gets separated from the group because he was holding the which I, was one thing i thought was kind of funny like nobody attempted to help him uh no. to help mon hold the the uh, uh, uh gangplank in any way and so he holds it for a really long time and then just lets it fall on a bunch of zombies uh, at the end. Which I thought was, was just kind of funny, but he's literally holding it for the longest time to keep it from falling. And then he just drops it on a, a bunch of zombies. Um, so he gets into an awesome fight with, you know, lead cannibal number one, I guess we can call it. And uh, and it's it's a nicely executed, really good fight scene. Um, we suddenly understand why he's in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> he he pulls off some pretty cool moves. There's a lot of really aggressive hand to hand stuff. Um, and then again, the movie just turns gross, and the lead zombie just 
starts eating him alive in the middle of the fight. Yeah. Uh, just bites into his gut and, and starts eating him. Uh, it, again, it's it's really well done. It's very well executed. It's it's unexpected. You know, you expect okay, well we're in we're in fight mode now, um, and then it turns back to the horror, and uh, he kills him. You know, sort of rips off uh, some kind of talon from his back and uses it to kill him. And uh, oh, I, I guess we'd mentioned earlier earlier in the film um, there had been a child, right? Uh, a child mutant that they meet um, and they, they convince Ma not to kill it because it's just, just a little kid, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, they're, they're breeding. They're you know, trying to form a society again, all the stuff we were just talking about. And so the child shows up again after he kills the leader and uh, he hesitates and the, the, the little kid kills him. Right? Which I remember, I remember not liking the first time I watched this film. I was like, man, really? Like what? Um, I mean, it did the whole. You know, he got hurt, and once he gets hurt, of course, you know he's he's. At it's risk, only a matter of time. Know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. He's the final girl, um, <laughs> or the second to last girl, I guess, the one that gets hurt and then dies. Um, but he 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 dies uh and and then interspersed with that we've been shown Leland you know leaving the rest of the group behind and um heading to the bridge on his own right cuz he was promised that he would be fine when he but by the time he arrives Dennis Quaid has has figured out who he really is right that he is actually Corporal Gallo dun, 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 and that dun. he has just convinced himself that he is Lieutenant Peyton because that's the pod he woke up in um, but now he knows, and I, I have to give some props to Quaid here because he completely changes. Um, what we interpreted at the beginning as uh, kindness and, and sincerity all flips to smarm and self-confidence, yeah. and, and he just turns into a heel immediately. Right, it is. It is a, a literal heel turn, as, uh, he, as he realizes who he is. Fortunately, um, Corporal Bauer, Ben Foster, and Nadia are able to make it through the door. Uh, he he sets it to close because he is, has no interest in you know them staying alive. Um, but they make it through, and and then he obliterates one of the cannibals with his little hand cannon thing. Uh, and just gets absolutely sprayed with blood, which I thought was a, a fun effect, I suppose. Uh, and now we have the the final confrontation with uh, Corporal Gallo with Dennis Quaid, who, you know, now if if you've been if you've been keeping track and putting it together, he's the bad guy. He's <gasps> the one that tried to be the king. No, we weren't sure. We're just going to give you all of these little flashbacks to scenes earlier in the film where you can piece together exactly what happened yeah. uh, and that he uh, was the one who, who sort of ruined the ship. And, and again, Quaid's, Quaid's good. I mean, he's, he's good in this sequence, right? And Foster knows, right? He came in knowing, which that was one thing I was going to ask you. So while they're, while they're down, before they get to the reactor, when they're in one of the infinite number of little rooms with hypersleep pods in it, uh, he sees one for M. Peyton. 
Um, and for the life of me, maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention when I rewatched this earlier today. What does he discover in that scene exactly? Do you do you remember? I well, it's not really clear. Like he, it's implied that he looks in it. Yeah, he. <laughs> but I don't. I don't know if we're ever told specifically what he discovers in that pod. That reveals that Peyton is not Peyton. Uh, I didn't. I, I don't think it's anything specific, or if it is. I was too dumb to figure out what it was, apparently. But I, I don't I think I'm to, that dumb. <laughs> I may have to go and, and rewatch it uh, just just to see. I, I looked at it a couple of times, and I was like, "What? What is he seeing?" You know, it's it's obviously supposed to be the basis for him knowing that he's bad, um, even though that's not a hundred percent established. He wasn't there for the entirety of that. But it, presumably he sees something in in that pod that makes him realize that you know it's it's he's not the real Peyton or or whatever. But I, I don't think it's supposed to be the same Peyton. It would probably be like his his wife or or something. I I I literally don't know. I cannot tell you what that sequence is supposed to indicate or how it's supposed to reveal that. Um, and it's probably because I'm not paying attention or I wasn't paying attention. Well, and, and that sort of illustrates the pro- problem with the film. It's like, why can't I remember that detail if it was presented to me? <laughs> yeah, it just, it does. If it was presented, I did not get it. And, and it did not mean anything to me. Um, I'm reviewing it. Give me just a second. I'm just going to clap that and then I'll... Okay. Okay. We were, we were meant to look up. We were meant to survive. I remember. Okay. So he says, I remember. He walks towards the hypersleep pod. I remember Peyton's wife, Miriam. Look at pod, look at name. So he just, does he just remember who Peyton was? He just remembers who Peyton was. That's what he does. Okay. Okay. Okay, so so after It would have been nice if we had a... (laughs) Yeah, like after reviewing, dear listener, uh, we, we... pause to go back and look to clarify for ourselves um we're shown a hypersleep hypersleep pod with Peyton on it but M Peyton and he looks at Nadia Ben Foster's character and he says I remember and then he looks at the pod says I remember his wife Miriam so looking at the pod was not important at all no what's important was that he remembered that Peyton had a wife and presumably remembers who Peyton was for real and that Dennis Quaid is not Peyton. And no wonder we wouldn't remember that because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, it, it does not hit significantly. Um, again, if we've established that flashbacks are okay, right? We've established that. 
why not just then flash back and we see some other dude with the Peyton jersey on and they're at a dinner party or something. Yeah. And just show us not it's, Peyton. Right? It's just that easy. <laughs> um, it's just so simple. Um, but so that's what arms foster with the knowledge that, uh, you know, Peyton is not Peyton. But uh, I did like Leland's death um, after Leland, you know, was, was such a, a terrible person. Uh, I was not sad to see him go, but he just gets stabbed in the eye by a, a sedative machine. It's a very violent death. <laughs> it is Super a violent, violent. death. Uh, the, the eye application to show the vial, to show the, the syringe like injected in is, is not fantastic. Um, but it, it is disturbing. Anything with eyes is disturbing. Um, man, I keep coming back to Dead Space. Maybe the people who watched it, who made Dead Space watched this a bunch. Because in Dead Space 2 as well, you, you, you are forced as part of the late game to stab your own character in the eye with a needle. And you're in control of the needle while it's happening. And you have to like be really precise about where it goes. Um, maybe, maybe, hmm, interesting parallels, interesting, <laughs> interesting connections, conundrums. Um, hmm. but anyway, so Leland is dead. It's basically just Nadia and Bowers against Corporal Gallo, fake Peyton, whatever you want to call him, uh, who is surprising, <laughs> uh, Dennis Quaid, uh, Quaid, Quaid, uh, open your mind, <laughs> Quaid, um, <laughs> But he's surprisingly calm about everything. Like, he doesn't seem perturbed uh, by anything that's going on. And he, he seems to, to suggest that Bauer should, like... I guess it's sort of a weird variant of the join me speech. Like, you know, he's, he's giving, like, let go of your morality. Like, you know, just... It's it's basically like, don't be such a square, man. Just like kill some people and stuff, whatever. Being and evil is cool. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I would expect a little bit more ranting and and raving, but this is where a lot of the ideas in the film they try to converge them all at once, and depending on how invested you are in the idea that Ben Foster's character is, is losing his mind will depend how into what's happening here you are. Because obviously Dennis Quaid is insane. Uh, he has lost his mind long ago. He's let go of all reason. He's let go of all social empathy. Uh, he's just a monster, right? Kill, murder, maim, whatever doesn't make a difference. And and he's he's like, and he's like trying to get Foster on his side, and Foster is freaking out. Right, we get lots of interesting whip pans and some speed ratcheting, and a lot of wide-angled, almost fisheye lenses, sort of zooming in on people's faces. Uh, it feels a little bit Evil Dead, if we're being honest. It goes right? on a bit too. It, it does, because he's supposedly like, as as Quaid is talking, and he's building the connection between Quaid being the, the king, you know, and he has all these like electric beams coming out of his head to illustrate that he's the one from the story. You know, Foster is, is 
supposedly losing his mind, right? That's that's what we're supposed to believe is happening. Again, but we don't. We never have. No, because he's been completely in control for 95% of this movie. Um, you know, he just murdered a couple of the zombie things. He... I just he he has not seemed unhinged at any point, and I now feel like it it would have been more interesting to me if <clears throat> they had taken this opportunity to just make get rid of the space crazies. I I I don't know. That's the one plot arc that didn't work for me in the movie. I kind of wish that. Quaid had just been a really bad guy that maybe he lost his mind because he had been awake for so long and by himself mm-hmm. and and had you know something in his past that caused him to snap and just become this ridiculous supervillain but the whole trying to get Ben Foster on his side didn't make any sense to me I'm like if if everything that we've learned about this character is true wouldn't he just already be bored with them kill them and then wake up to more people i it certainly seems so um there's the events of this story would would seem to support that bauer is nothing special um and and that you know quaid would would not be or gallo would not be threatened by him um you know, it's it's really he's just so happened to get the the edge on him this time uh, because he, too, had been asleep long enough to forget or what have you. But I kind of hoped for a most dangerous game thing between the two of them. Sure. But that almost would have been more interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it would have taken longer. I, I mean, this this really does feel like it's rushing to its end as quickly yeah. as it possibly can because it has another big reveal that it, it wants to share. Mm-hmm. Um, did just again another clarifying point. Uh, I don't. We're not going to go back and review this one like we did for the, <laughs> the hyperpod scene. Um, why? Why did Ben Foster rip out one of Dennis Quaid's teeth? I don't know. <laughs> um, why did that happen? <laughs> I. He says, like, even if I, I think he says, even if I have to tear the sick out of you myself. And then he just sticks a pair of pliers from somewhere. Uh, I, I guess he's got like a little pack of tools or something. <laughs> um, he pulls a pair of pliers out and then then it it certainly looks like he just ripped a tooth out of his head. Like that's what it looks like. Um, and I don't know what that is. Is it a reference to something that we didn't see? Uh, I I just I don't understand. Uh, he he hurts him real bad, and he's bleeding out the mouth even more, which is something that this character you know has been. Maybe doing they for really a while. just wanted him to bleed out of his mouth. They were like, that would look really cool. Let's find I mean, a way to make that happen. It's it's disconcerting to see, um, you know, someone get their tooth ripped out or have pliers shoved in their mouth. I mean, that's again it's horrific i get it uh antibodies i will say that antibodies had a lot of moments like that a lot of like really effective body horror like maiming cutting slicing type stuff in it um so maybe that's just an alvart thing maybe he just feels that those that that's really horrific so i wanted to include it i don't know um but really all of that builds 
to foster having a few more freakouts. But um, Quaid opens up the uh, cockpit shutters, the blast shutters, which are closed, and reveals that there are no stars, right? Implying that he's done this before, right? He's had it open and and he's in his nihilism that's been been wrought on him from you know the years of being alone the violent tendencies the sociopathic behaviors what have you when he opened it up there are no stars there's there's no you know where are they what have they done they sailed right past the destination you know it's pretty that's a pretty creepy moment yeah no it's a really effective moment and it explains a lot of why someone might let go right like the world doesn't make sense um but they open the shutters they look through them for 10 seconds maybe 15 and a giant bioluminescent like manta ray just yeah. slides across so here's how i've articulated this in my head okay so i'm crazy dennis quaid I'm sitting in the captain's chair surrounded by the dead bodies of the people i've murdered <laughs> as you do <laughs> as you do uh, I'm feeling deeply contemplative, you know, I'm thinking about the world, thinking about the universe. What's my place in this universe? Michael W. Smith songs are playing in my head. <laughs> um, and I open the shutters, right? And, and there's the, the seeming expanse of, of, of blackness, no stars, right? No, no point of light to guide me home. And I'm thinking... I'm going to stare at that blankness for a while because that blankness reflects my soul. Right? Yeah. Um, the shutters were open for seconds, 15 tops. And a fish swam by immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So if he had opened the shutters to look into the vast expanse of nothingness, either he was so insane that he couldn't, comprehend or process what was happening uh, or he was too stupid to realize that they had reached their destination hundreds of years before crash landed into the planet and were sitting at the bottom of one of the planet's oceans um, which is the the big reveal of Pandorum that the entire time that they've been struggling with the reactor so that they can get to Tannis and have a life well, guess what? We there. Been there for 800 plus years. Oops. Just <laughs> chilling underwater. Eh. Um, and apparently there's only one window and it's in. Yeah. You know, which again. Well, space a, windows are dangerous. Space <laughs> windows are dangerous. It's a colony ship. Everybody's supposed to be in hypersleep anyway. I get it. But still, one window. Nobody chose to look at it for 800 years. Awesome. And like, it but. would have been fine if Quaid was like, we're at the bottom of the ocean and we can't get out unless everybody dies. Ah, I'll just go crazy and kill everyone myself. I would have been fine with that. Sure. Yeah, that almost would have been better. <laughs> like, we're here, we're under the ocean. I don't know how to get us out. But unfortunately, they undo that reveal as well because they set up at the very, you know, first 20 minutes that the last time somebody went, crazy space crazy <laughs> um that what he did was he ejected all of the individual hypersleep pods into space which if i'm designing a spaceship 
I don't think I would let you do that. I'm going to go ahead and say that that is not the most efficient way to evacuate a ship is to send out like 60,000 individual pods in all directions, all directions. Just hope one of them hits a planet. <laughs> um, I mean, how are you even going to collect those? Do you just have a big net? Where you're, you're not. Gonna, like, fly through space and just round them all up? Those people um, are basically dead now. <laughs> but they established that every colonist who's like still alive inside their hypersleep pod would be ejected from the ship, which we need to do because that is what is going to happen at the end of this film. Because in one of in Ben Foster's like Pandorum fueled freakout, or what we're supposed to believe is one, he sees one of the the cannibals coming through like an access panel on the wall, and he uses his little hand wrist blaster to shoot at it um there is no monster coming from the wall and instead it ricochets or it causes something to explode and ricochet and it breaks the windshield right it breaks the presumably very thick and, and very very sturdy windshield on the front of the spaceship but it breaks it and since they are underwater water begins rushing in uh, so Dennis Quaid is is very quickly overwhelmed as he sits in the captain's chair. Uh, ben Foster and Nadia make it to one of the hypersleep pods, get inside, start trading oxygen. It's filling with water, so they don't have much time. You know, so that's it's a very nice, nice moment. That's a yeah. good moment. All right, it's it's tense. It's tightly shot. It kind of takes us right back to the beginning of the film where he's trapped in that pod and he can't get out, and you know, unsupported breathing. It's a nice little visual parallel. And then they get ejected from the ship and the, the pod's still filling with water, can't breathe. You know, I, they could have amped the tension up a little bit more here, you know, had him kind of banging and struggling. We just kind of see, you know, from a distance what's going on. But they they surface, uh, the door pops off and, and everything's fine, right? Which again, if Ben Foster just had like Pandorum fueled freakout, right? Orbital freakout. Why moment, is he fine now? He is fine. Like he is more than fine. The smile, the the genuinely beautiful smile that he has once he realizes what's happening, he sees the the curvature of the ship sticking up out of the water, which again implies were there no people in that section? they not have gotten I mean, what like, part of I mean, the ship is that <laughs> i mean is it like is that like where you guys kept the food or was that like you know like well that's where we kept all the t-shirts right like that's for that's the t-shirt section where they were going to have t-shirts after we got out <laughs> right? there was a lot of like white crew tees in there maybe some socks and so nobody went to check it out it, is, it gets very, it's a beautiful shot. It's a nice special effects sequence, but it, it makes very little sense in the context of, oh, we're trapped under the ocean, we can't get out of the ship. Um, but they escape. There's a nice, you know, sort of slow pan as we see dozens of these, <coughs> uh, dozens of these cartridges, you know, these hypersleep pods kind of popping above the surface. Because the, the sort of backgrounded thread of all this, if Earth is truly gone, then it's just them. Like, this is humanity. Yeah, this right? is it. And it's it's not heavily discussed. You, know, you don't have characters having deep philosophical conversations about what it feels like to be the paragons of the human race. But maybe we should have. Maybe a couple of those yeah. wouldn't have been bad. 
um, I guess Quaid is trying to make that argument at the end that this violent and but he hasn't made it before yeah but i guess he's trying to make that argument that you know this violent and brutal society is better than the one that they were going to build so why not just let it keep going and it leads me to think that maybe there was more just as you mentioned earlier you know there is a society that has developed amongst these blue-skinned creepy cannibals right like maybe he has convinced himself that this world that he's created is a better world right um probably because he's in charge i would think but maybe there was some idea being developed that maybe it would be better you know we i mean the again the very sort of sci-fi tropey concept well we screwed up bad and, and wrecked everything so maybe we should just take ourselves out of the equation and just let this new thing do its, you know, run its course. Which could have been interesting if on the <clears throat> bridge with the final encounter with Dennis Quaid, if it hadn't been about the space crazies and it had instead been a discovery that he was keeping them on the ship under the water for his purposes and then they just eject everybody. Right. And leave him down there with and the just monsters. Leave him down there with the monsters to die. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, the, again, there's. This is one of those movies. I don't generally. I don't, I don't generally seek out director's cuts. Um, you know, if I find one, great. Like the director's cut of the Frighteners. You know, cool, awesome. A little bit more uh, footage. You know, whatever. But I, I, you know, I was not one of the people demanding that Zack Snyder release the Snyder cut. Good God. Um, you know, I'm I, I'm interested in additional scenes and cut scenes from a filmmaking perspective. Because usually if a scene's been cut, it was cut for a reason. Probably should stay cut. But this is one movie where I actually would be very interested to see some of that stuff. Because I imagine, imagine, that it is probably some of the pieces that we're talking about not being here yeah i have a suspicion because there's just too many hanging threads for a filmmaker like alvart who seems very competent right if, if not excellent if not incredible competent a good director antibodies was enough for me to say like this dude knows what he's doing he can tell a tight story it makes me think that there's a stuff on the cutting room floor that would would sort of wrap a few of these things up. Um, at least I would like to think so. But yeah, like there there could definitely be room here for, you know, you want to be the king of this universe, you be the king of this universe. We're we're out, right? We're going somewhere else, and we're taking everybody else with us. And. You know, it's it's a nice scene. It's meant to be triumphant. The music sort of switches tenor to be this really like big, uplifting, you know, sort of like powerful, you know, kind of thing. Ben Foster flashes those those beautiful pearly whites, and you know, there's space world, right? It's the future, and it's nice. I mean, again, this is a film that doesn't have great budget, so the special effects are eh, okay. Yeah, you composited some good stuff there. 
But then we're, we're told at the very end that it's, you know, day one of Tannis and, uh, you know, the population's like 1,251 or something. So out of the 60,000 or so that made their way on the Elysium, 1,200 survived. <laughs> so uh, there's a, a lot of, there's a lot of people that got eight uh, in, on that ship over that uh, time period, but... Which, uh, the timeline in and of itself, I think, is problematic for this movie. Right? I like that it's like been 800 years and they've you know, been on the ship way longer than they needed to be. But they but... tried to explain things a bit more. And they should have just left it at that. It's been 800 years. Right, because <laughs> once you introduce the idea of of Gallo dipping in and out of this world... Right, like, did he just do it the once? Has he been in hypersleep ever since he got this ball rolling? Has he popped out of hypersleep periodically? If he did, how did he do that? Right, there's, you know, the way the story's told to us by Leland, he got the ball rolling, he ruled the world for a time, presumably if he transitioned from Kim Gigande into Dennis Quaid, it was probably 30 years, 40 years maybe. But then it's, we're told that he went back to hypersleep and then, he wakes up from hypersleep when Ben Foster does. So, okay, what what happened, right? How long has it been since he went to sleep? Has it been 800 years? Has it been, you know, 850 years? What? Um, like, we just, we don't know. And, and they go out of their way to make us think about it, right? Like, I wouldn't have necessarily thought about it but you made me think about it, and then you didn't answer my questions. <laughs> um, I, I guess it is possible that Leland didn't make those drawings and that he didn't come up with that story. He's inherited it from someone else, perhaps. But that is a lot to ask us to accept. That, <laughs> right. That seems, it seems like a pretty big jump that, you know, well, does that imply then that Leland you know, wasn't ever in a hypersleep pod, that he was born into that world? Um, has his family always had that little well where they <laughs> gassed people and ate them? Is Did he grow up there? Generations yeah. in the well. <laughs> you know, this we're generation 15, living in the well, eating, eating cannibals when they hove their way by. It's like, uh, what? Are you, okay. So again, it's, it's, it's little things like that that make me think that there were small pieces meant to build that larger set of stories just cut, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, I guess, you know, briefing completed, we can kind of move into the final phase because uh, it, it feels like we've been very down on this film and there are absolutely things to be down about on the film, just as there are with many of the movies that exist in this sci-fi horror genre, right? Even Event Horizon, which I, I love and I consider a, an excellent film, there are things about it that I go, eh, okay, you know. Um, even though I love the scene, uh, Jonesy, like, riding the, the space rocket back in to the ship is a little goofy, you know, like yeah. little things, little things like that. But Pandorum, I think, is still a film worth people's time. Um, 
there's enough going on here that despite these issues, and I, I will be the first of them, but the second act is all, all kinds of problematic. It just is. Um, it just feels like stops and starts. It doesn't really have a great flow. It, it, it just, it's the wor- it's the, the most difficult part of the movie for me. It just feels like they've started a bunch of things and then they don't really know where to go with them. Yeah. Um, but the opening, great, absolutely classic sci-fi horror. Ending, solid, sort of really just sci-fi actioner taking, taking us out, but still, you know, pretty good. But so I, I guess let's just go ahead and move into uh, recommendations, right? Like, what do we think? Where are we at with this one? Um, again, we're sort of wrapping up Spooktober, so we are trying to provide people with a, a spooky experience they may not have had. But, you know, again, this is a film where we can sort of step back from it and be semi-objective. But where would you place this one on your failure piece score a meter? I'm going to go higher than... I originally had because um, I go back and forth there because there are things about it that this movie that I absolutely love. I love sci-fi horror. I love that it's practical effects. I love that it's kind of small and, and close quarters and it it's very claustrophobic and it's got a lot of really great horrific moments in it. However, it does have a lot of script problems. I don't feel like the the film itself has many problems or or things that necessarily bother me, but the script has issues. And so I feel like I'm sitting at a like a 70 for this. Um cuz I like enough about the film and I think I haven't seen enough science fiction horror in my lifetime, believe it or not, that I'm I'm willing to give it more of a pass, but a 70 is sort of where I'm sitting. Um, that's incredibly ironic because I, my score was basically exactly the same. This is a (laughs) solid C for me. Um, it really is. Um, it is, it is a good watch. Again, the performance by Ben Foster cannot be praised enough, uh, in my opinion. I think, uh, he carries this movie on his back and much like Adam Driver with the sequel trilogy of Star Wars films, he mm-hmm. he very capably and sexily just puts it on his shoulders and just manhandles it all the way to the end. Um, and uh, and he's he's good. It's worth watching for him and Quaid alone in many ways. Um, and in in some ways, I think you know we we haven't done our one thing yet, but the one that I was going to mention, I almost think that this movie would work better even smaller even more two guys communicating on a radio yeah trying to fix a thing oh my god there's cannibals holy crap there's could have been almost like a system shock sort of reveal absolutely i mean like this movie got accused of being like a video game anyway go all in (laughs) go all in man you've got to do i mean i come i keep coming back to dead space but it's because there's there's a lot here that is very similar and one of the things that i love about the original dead space is that isaac is a silent protagonist he doesn't talk um they changed that with the later sequels which was not for ill i didn't didn't think it ruined anything but as a silent protagonist basically all of your you know your instructions your exposition it's all coming through the radio from the people you're working with and it creates this incredible tension 
as you are being sort of directed from place to place. And I kind of wanted a little bit of that here. Like, you know, Foster gets cut off from Quaid on the radio pretty much the moment that he meets one of the other characters on the ship. And, and then doesn't reestablish contact until basically they're almost back at the reactor. Yeah. That he says, oh, hey, you know, I'm still here. And I really thought that this movie would benefit from just being guy out in the field, guy on the radio. Oh, we've got to do this. Oh, no, this complication, this complication, this complication. And it's fine if you want to have other characters, right? Like the, you know, he stumbles across the biologist in her lab and you know she's built herself up defenses and and you know he gets help from her or you know whatever like you could have all the same beats and all the same characters but i i really think that this film would benefit from a more in-depth character study between these two guys and that would make the psychological reveal of who dennis quaid is and what dennis quaid has become even more devastating Right, because he was the guy, right? He was, you were helping me. We were friends. And now yeah. it turns out you weren't that. And it was always something else, even though you didn't realize it. Um, and maybe that, even open it up that Dennis Quaid could be shocked by himself, right? I didn't yeah. realize this is who I was. And now it is. And I'm going to embrace it. Like that, that, that seems like interesting, dramatic territory to mine within you know the story of cannibals and running and hiding in corners and all that stuff i mean you can do all that stuff too but that was kind of my my thing my my one thing is is similar a little bit broader um just because i i didn't put that much thought into it i guess (laughs) um but my my feeling is this movie needs like an extra 10 or 15 minutes Mm -hmm. um i don't think that would hurt anything and i also think the action could be not dialed back, but made briefer. Um, shorten the action sequences in favor of more horror, more more detailed flashbacks, more not expository dialogue, because we sure get enough of that, mm-hmm. but different kinds of exposition. Um, and just a, a good rewrite. It feels like this was very rushed. Like they took these two script ideas, squished them together as hard as they could, and just made a movie and didn't really spend enough time kind of crafting a story that hangs well <laughs> in the film that they made. Yeah. Um, so that would be mine. I, absolutely. I, I think this does feel like a movie that was cobbled together from two different ideas that had common points, right? The ship and space, motivation for getting out there, like, you know, definitely places where they lined up, but with different sort of thematic and character goals at their heart. And and I think those, those still exist uh, in a couple of spots. And... You know, I, I think there is a lot of dramatic tension to be mined for somebody who's a monster and has forgotten, didn't yeah. remember that you're a horrible person. Um, you know, that's that's an interesting place to go and to have them be kind and magnanimous and thoughtful and then flip. That's, that's the, really the idea of being betrayed by your own memories is just really fascinating. And it tends mm-hmm. to be effective in horror movies for most people because none of us want to believe that that could happen to us. Yeah, I mean, um, 
even around that time, a few years before, uh, if you remember High Tension. Oh, yeah. Uh, the French uh, slasher, psychological slasher film, I guess, um, played with that, right? Of a character that, you know, just, just got the facts wrong and was, was incorrect. Um, it's, a cool, it's a cool thing to play with in the right hands. Uh, Alexander Aha is probably a better director than Christian Alvard. Um, but, you know, I, I think in the right circumstances, it still could work. But. So ultimately, uh, we've, we've shared our scores or one things, but uh, so would you recommend Pandorum for a, a spooky watch in this lovely October? I would. I, like I said, I don't see enough experimentation with science fiction horror films um, and that makes me sad because it, it is my button and I do mm. appreciate when filmmakers press it. Um, and I, I was drawn to this film because it got attention from Paul W.S. Anderson. I don't hate him. I actually like most of his movies, yeah. um, for what they are. Um, and it's, it reminded me of Event Horizon and sort of, and, and that's just, that's the kind of science fiction horror I would like to see more of. And so while it has problems, I still think it's worth your time, especially if you are a horror fan, you know, like mm. we, we said yeah. earlier, you're kind of willing to take a little bit less in terms of delivery. <laughs> Definitely. Horror fans are, are willing to take the hit to get a little bit of that fix. And, and that's where I'm at too. And I, I heartily recommend Pandorum. It's, it's a, it's a weird little beast of a film. It certainly has its issues and problems. I'm not going to say it's the most satisfying film to watch in the world. Quite the opposite. But it provides enough of, of what I'm looking for out of a film of this type that I, I think it's, it's worth the time to spend on it. Uh, and like I said, Foster's great. I mean, if you just enjoy good performance, uh, it's really good. Uh, the practical effects excellent uh, and, and hold up very well. I mean, this doesn't really look, there's a couple of CG shots, a little rough, but um, this doesn't really look or, or feel like a movie made in 2009. A lot of special yeah. effects movies in 2009 still did not look great. We'd certainly made some good strides. It's not like we're talking like 2001, 2000 era, you know, CG special effects, but um, you know, some 2009 stuff still looked pretty rough, but this looks looks good. It, it knew the wheelhouse that it was in, and it stayed there. And as a result, there's a cohesion to it that feels pretty solid and uh, and enjoyable. Um, but yeah, the practical effects are just top notch. Really good stuff. All of the uh, the creature effects and the, uh, even the just the production design in general. Even though it was obviously limited by budget. I think the stuff looks pretty good. The uniform, the flight uniforms are actually, you know, they look solid. Um, and you get to see a scene of a man shaving with a laser. That is La one of the coolest things ever. Laser shaving. <laughs> and it's actually pretty good. I mean, it's it's obvious that he was clean shaven and then they just digitally added beard uh, to then digitally cut off with a But I've always laser. sort of fantasized about shaving my legs with a laser. Yeah, it's it, but it's it's a really neat little moment. It's uh, completely unnecessary. You could have done it a billion other ways, but um, so cool. It's it still looked really cool. But. 
Similar oh. to how Superman would shave his face. <laughs> exactly. Mirrors and heat vision. That's how you do it. That's, that's what we've been told. Um, hopefully Zack Snyder will be able to include that in the Snyder Cut. That's what I'm looking for. Lord willing. Um, that's that, The Snyder Cut won't be complete unless I see Superman shave. And, uh, and I, I want gonna, all my questions answered. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take that to the bank, right? If I don't see Superman shave and if I don't see... Uh, Lois Lane have a longer conversation with Clark's mom about MILFs. Um, I just, I, I don't know what I'll do because I, I need that in my life because there's nothing better than watching a superhero's mother talk with his girlfriend about MILFs. Bless um, you, Or Zach being Snyder. thirsty. That's what it is, being thirsty. Oh, uh, yeah. Clark said you were the thirstiest girl he's ever met. Uh, mm. Thank you, Zach Snyder. Thank you so much. All right, well, let's wrap this thing up. Pandorum's a, a lovely little film, imperfect, but those flaws make it lovely. Definitely a failure piece worth your time. So where can you be found on social media, Kath? I can, I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. And I can be found on Twitter at T Baskin. You can always find us as a combo, as a unit, at Theater on Twitter. And you can email us at failurepiece at gmail.com. So thanks for hanging out with us on this uh, potentially cold October Eve. I know it's getting chilly where I live, but definitely take a time to uh, check out Pandorum if you are interested. We heartily recommend it as a fun little sci-fi horror experience. Uh, have a great week. We appreciate you listening, and we will definitely see you next time. Bye-bye.